The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, and my name is Whitney Seibold. And, no, I'm not. I was going to say something about explode, just so you'd have to mix in another explosion. Thank you. But I'm not going to do that. Thank you. It's late. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Uh, and you can call me whatever you want. Okay. Whitney Seibold it is. Thank you. Uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases Malcolm and Marie, Earwig, and The Witch. Those are two movies, not four. <laughs> and, okay. No, it's, it's one movie. It's like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. <laughs> nice. And also the new documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix. Also on the critically acclaimed streaming club where we take this opportunity while there's nothing in theaters to explore what else is on streaming services. Uh, we're looking at my favorite film <laughs> that Whitney had somehow never seen. <laughs> uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, which is on mm. Netflix right now, I suspect because it's a chess movie and the Queen's Gambit was such a big oh, pop culture are. sensation. It didn't used to be on Netflix. Queen's Gambit was very, very popular, and then like a month later it was on Netflix. What, what, what chess movies can we get? Quick! There's only a couple. Like, what are we going to do? No, um, nobody wants to see The Lusion Defense. <laughs> Remember that movie? Vaguely. Was, didn't John Turturro direct John, that? Uh, John Turturro was in it, and he directed, and nice. uh, Emily Watson was the star. Good times. Um... So, uh, so yeah, we're doing all of those things. Hmm. All of those things. Uh, but before we get into any of that, hey, you. Yes, you. I? Not you. Oh. People at home. Okay. Or in, in their car, wherever they are. Hi. You like soap? <laughs> oh, you got you got something to plug. Yeah, well, we got soap over here. Uh, Emma Lapis da Silva and I, my wife and partner, uh, we have a soap business over at Etsy.com. Uh, if you go to Etsy and you look for Salt Cat Soap, look for the sketch of Luca with the bar of soap. Uh, we have just dropped a ton of new uh, uh, new designs uh, on the store this last weekend. Uh, we got uh, Valentine's Day uh, themed soap sets. Uh, we've got really fancy soap sets. We've got some really nice uh, chamomile bars, which are just put you right to sleep they're so relaxing um and uh we got one that's called the breakup bar it's my new favorite scent it's chocolate and orange dark chocolate and orange rather mm, so good anyway i just want to make sure everyone knew that there's a new line and there's going to be a new line every first saturday of the month just want to let y'all know because uh emma silva has put a, a ton of work into these and they look really cool nice. and they smell really cool and they're very very good soaps so i hope you all enjoy them thank you everybody who has already purchased some and uh, left us a review all the reviews have been raved so far so that's really exciting so, excellent yeah just want to make sure everyone knew yeah. uh, I've, I've, since we started working on it people were asking like when are you gonna do the soaps and i'm like well now have and, soap. <laughs> and then uh, but it's not just a one-time thing we'll be throughout and there'll be new designs and they'll be really really cool so um we hope you enjoy them as much as everyone else uh, already has been so thank you very much and then on a on a more dour note no, not not dour, but tr- sad, somber, somber note. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost some more legends uh, this week. Last week we we did uh, eulogies for um, it was 
uh, it was Chloris Leachman. That was a Chloris Leachman. It was Chloris Leachman. Cicely Tyson. Tyson. Yeah. So we, we lost a few legends, and yeah. uh, and wouldn't you know it, we lose two more uh, in the following week. Uh, yeah. It's uh, very sad to note the passing of, uh, firstly, Hal Holbrook. Yeah. Uh, Academy Award-nominated actor who was in... Uh, Everything. A ton of <laughs> movies. Holy mm. crap. Movies, television. Um, more, most recently, you might remember him from the movie Lincoln. Uh, or um, his, most, his, his last Academy Award nomination came from the film, uh, the 2007 film Into the Wild. Yeah. Uh, which um, was really, really good. That's it's the true story of a fellow who decided to live off of the grid and how Holbrook uh, plays a man who ends up... Uh, Staying with this guy for a little bit, or he, the uh, Christopher McCandless moves in with the Hal Holbrook character, mm-hmm. and they grow very, very close to the point where uh, there's this wonderful, uh, heart wrenching scene where Hal Holbrook very warmly opens up to this this man. He's an adult, but mm-hmm. uh, he says, "I I'd like I'd like to adopt you." Like mm-hmm. he wanted him to be his actual son. It was. Just such a beautiful, beautiful moment in, in a pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, but that was like almost, like almost the button to his career because he had been working for literally decades. And he kept working uh, for a while after that, but that was like his last major, major role. He's probably best known uh, for providing uh, the character of Deep Throat in All the President's Men. Right. Uh, All the President's Men is, of course, uh, a movie about the investigation into the Watergate scandal. Um, it's fact-based. It came out only a couple of years after the thing actually happened. You know, nowadays, you might say too soon, but actually, it's one of the best movies ever made. And at the time, nobody knew who Deep Throat was. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, we've in the last couple of decades, I think we found out, but I'm trying to remember exactly when it was. I think it was like the early mm-hmm. 2000s. No, it was like two years ago. Was it only two years two, ago? Or I, maybe it was. It was a bit ago. It was a couple of years back. It was it was a couple and, uh, of years back. And for, it, for many for my yeah. most of my life, people didn't know who Deep Throat was. And, and it turns out it was a guy. <laughs> it was just some guy. No, it like wasn't a, just some guy. Well, but I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't like someone like amazing, like it blow your mind. It wasn't like, oh somebody, God, it was like, Elvis. Like, somebody you had knew? already known. It was yeah. it was a, a guy who was a spy, and that's who yeah. he was. Uh but uh, Hal Holbrook played the character in All the President's Men, cloaked mm-hmm. in shadow. Um the, he had the responsibility of giving all of these mysterious monologues about corruption in the White House and he had the gravitas to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew Hal Holbrook really, really well from the horror movies that he'd made. Uh, he was in uh, one of the better installments in Creepshow, mm-hmm. which is still one of the best horror anthology movies ever made. Uh, and he plays a guy who finds a wooden crate with a giant monster in it. The story is uh, called The Crate. And uh, he this he conspires to uh, feed... Uh, the wife he doesn't like to the monster and that's mm. the whole bit and he's just this like kind of meek guy who all of a sudden has this opportunity to do evil and he's like mm. yeah, let's do it um he was also i think was was he the priest in the fog am i remembering that correctly yeah he was he yeah. was he was in john carpenter's film the fog yeah uh, which um celebrated by horror fans not really w- widely known as something like halloween but Still very good. It's very good. It's, not my, it's not my favorite carpenter. Go, but. Ghosts of sailors come in a, a fog bank that rolls ashore on a small uh, sea town, and mm. there's a lot of scary images in it of ghosts coming out of the fog. Very eerie. Uh, he was also, uh, for many years, uh, starred in a one-man show about Mark Twain, oh, yeah. where he played Mark Twain. And uh, there's this wonderful uh, wonderful quote from Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, Charles Nelson Riley. uh Bon vivant and game show regular uh, joked about how uh, he went to the actor's studio 
And back then, Hal Holbrook was just starting his his uh, Mark Twain show. Decades later, he learned that he was still doing it. It's like Charles Nelson Reilly, like goes up to Holbrook. He's still doing it. You know, it's a Hal Holbrook movie that I I really like that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot anymore. Is Capricorn One? <laughs> you ever see Capricorn One? Uh, I have seen Capricorn One. That's the one where they they fake the space flight, right? Uh yeah. Well, it's a you know it's based off of the urban legend that the trip to the moon wasn't real and it was mm-hmm. all faked. And um, this is a fictionalized uh, story. Well, that would be fictional anyway. But uh, it's about the first manned trip to Mars. And then just before the trip to Mars, all the astronauts like James Brolin and I think Elliot Gould and O.J. Simpson, um, they're told, uh, hey, we just found out it's actually impossible, but we can't scrub the mission. We're in the middle of a Cold War. So Mm -hmm. we're just going to hide you guys out and uh, we're going to we're going to say it worked. Okay, (laughs) okay, we're doing good. Great. Problem is, eventually they realize that it's too big a secret to keep and they might have to decide that all the astronauts were lost in space. And now all of them, all these astronauts are on the run and they have to prove that they're alive before mm. anyone, you know, before the government can kill them to keep the secret. And, um, you know, it's a premise that, can, you know, perpetuates a, a stupid urban legend, but it's a fun film. It's got mm. a cool car chase in it. Like, it's a cool film. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, Hal brought always brought a lot of gravitas. Mm. You'll notice that he played a lot of lawyers. He played a lot of politicians and statesmen. Um, just whenever he walked in, everyone's like, oh, well, he's in charge. Mm. Okay. We'll just listen to whatever he has to say. Thank you for the exposition in the, in the firm. Okay. We'll see you later. Okay. Uh, but uh, he, he was one of those... Uh, one of those... Pr- uh, Utterly professional character actors who would take any kind of role, and uh, so he was in a lot of a lot of trashy movies as well as, well as a lot of uh, really fun ones. Uh, he was in Wall Street. Okay, that yeah. that, that was a big awards contender sort of film, a, a serious right. drama about uh, American economics in the 1980s, and, uh, and then he chased that with the movie The Unholy, which is <laughs> okay if you're catching it on TV and you're 14 years old and you're me. <laughs> Again, he was one of the actors who'd be in everything. He, you mm-hmm. know, he would be in, you know, Fletch Lives, and then he'd be in like Disney's Hercules and Cats Don't Dance, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, he, he, just a great, reliable actor. I, I remember seeing the preview and being the only thing that really wanted me wanted me uh, make me want to see that film, The Bachelor. That oh, is the movie, the Chris, the Bachelor, the Chris O'Donnell, the Chris movie. O'Donnell yeah. vehicle. When Chris O'Donnell was like, like the hotness. It was, it was well, him and Renee. they wanted him to be the hot. They were f- trying to sell Chris O'Donnell as the hot. Chris O'Donnell like, was the a... hotness for a grand total of two films, Batman Forever mm. and Circle of Friends. Those and, were the and two. What, wasn't he in some sort of like school time thriller, like where he got to play something really dark and intense or some John Grisham type thing? Oh, he was in The Chamber. That's with, right, he was uh, in The Chamber with, with Gene with, Hackman. Which is easily the worst John Grisham, <laughs> like at least legal thriller. Like it's really, really bad. Like it's, I, ha- I haven't seen it, but I hear Christmas with the Cranks is technically the worst John Grisham that, movie. That's that's, that's why uh, I was saying it's the uh, of the legal thrillers. It's 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 the right. pits. It's so bad. Christmas with the Cranks is also but uh, just nails on chalkboard. But, yeah, the the Bachelor yeah. was this horrible romantic comedy about a guy who proposes to his girlfriend. He blows it. She says no. Uh, and then he learns from his like a, a wealthy uncle that he's going to get a hundred million dollars if he can get married like by the end of the day. Yeah, and so he either has to reconcile with his girlfriend or call up a bunch of old exes. And Hal Holbrook plays one of the lawyers who's trying to get him to marry, mm. and is 
and uh, you know gets to say really you know rude things like, "How about my granddaughter? She's only 15." Well, it's late, too late for you to play Mr. Choosy. That's weird and creepy. It's weird and creepy, but he's Hal Holbrook. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it, it was it's bizarre his, that he's his, making the his joke, presence yeah. in that crappy romantic comedy made me kind of want to see it. Well, the comedy has an amazing... I know we're just getting all up in The Bachelor mm. right now. I've actually never seen it, but they, it has an amazing cast. Because mm. in addition to Chris O'Donnell and Hal Holbrook, it's got Renee Zellweger, mm. it's got Ed Asner, it's got James Cromwell, it's got Marley Shelton, it's got Peter Ustinov. And Peter Ustinov was the, the dead wealthy uncle. Yep, it's got uh, Mariah Carey, it's got Sarah Silverman, it's got Brooke Shields. Oh, pretty right. cool cast, actually, <laughs> for cast. anything. Jennifer Esposito. Nancy Nash is in it in a small mm. role. Like, that was good yeah. damn cast is what that is. Well, like, maybe, maybe Hal Holbrook was the first to sign on and everybody followed him. Like, oh my God, Hal Holbrook's, Hal Holbrook's in there. I'm going to be in something with Hal Holbrook for oh sure. God, I love the silent movie it's a remake of. So uh, Hal Holbrook will be missed. Uh, he, yeah. he was in his 90s and good golly, what a legacy he left behind. Yeah, uh, but uh, right on his heels, like a, just like a day or two, mm. uh, we lost yet another absolute titan. We lost Christopher Plummer, uh, who had been <laughs> making hit movies since like the early 60s mm-hmm. um, and had never really lost a step. He was still like in hit movies as mm-hmm. of like two years ago. Like he was just in Knives Out and that whole movie centered around him. He had just gotten an, another Academy Award nomination for All the Money in the World, mm-hmm. and that was a movie where he had to replace Kevin Spacey at the last minute, record the role in just a few days, and guess what? He's amazing in it. <laughs> I haven't seen All the Money in the World. It's uh, a bad kidnapping thriller, uh, but a really strong movie about uh, you know sort of the downside of having a shit ton of money, uh, and he really sells it. Like He's okay. really good. Uh, Christopher Plummer, however, uh, unlike Hal Holbrook, who would, was just a, a good, hard-working professional actor, uh, Christopher Plummer seemed to be a little bit choosier. He uh, he was a, a classy actor. Mm. Uh, I think he even would call himself that. Well, he uh, rolled his eyes at doing The Sound of Music, which is, yeah, he, he just for inflation, one of the biggest movies of all time. And he, he, had he, a, he was a always very like, clear, eh. He had a very clear idea of the kinds of movies he wanted to be in and the kind of roles he wanted to star in. Uh, and that said, he did, did take on a good variety of roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first experience with Christopher Plummer was, of course, Star Trek VI. That was probably mine, too. Yeah, he, he played a, a Klingon named General Chang, who uh, flew a Klingon warbird that could fire while cloaked, which you can't do in Star Trek. Oh, my God. Uh, but he was also a Shakespeare enthusiast, a Klingon Shakespeare enthusiast. Because you and haven't I, read Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. And and he's the one who gets to shout out to be or not to be in Klingon in the course of that movie. I'm wondering how much of that was in the script and how much of that was Christopher Plummer. Who can say? Uh, I, sure, I'll play your Klingon. Uh, I, From what I understand, he was a big Star Trek fan, but he didn't want to wear like the Klingon makeup. Uh, Which is like a gigantic forehead. Well, he wore the Uh, forehead, but what he didn't wear was like the hair. There was this really uh, elaborate hair that they had had for Klingons. uh, Most Klingons, yeah, have these sort of like big head pieces. And he he had makeup, but it was not pronounced at all. And he wore an eye patch, which he had bolted onto his face. (laughs) Total badass. And I thought, that's really cool. And when I started seeing him in other things, I just had to point to say, oh, look, it's General Chang. Oh, wait a minute. This is the guy from The Sound of Music. And I realized I had seen The Sound of Music as a kid, 
And I real, you know, I, I actually started to realize that I had actually been seeing this guy for a long time. I actually, I just realized I was looking at his filmography, and uh-huh. I was like, "Wait a minute!" I just realized what I did know him from first. Uh, he did voiceover, uh, not you no, know, not as much as some actors, but he hmm. was a, a he did a lot of voiceover in the eighties and nineties in particular, and he did the voiceovers for Madeline. He was okay. the narrator in Madeline, and he also did voiceovers. I think he was the narrator in David the Gnome. Which, oh, I don't know uh, David the Gnome. Oh, David the Gnome was this uh, animated series about a gnome who lived in the woods, and he was a doctor. That mm. was the interesting thing about it. Like, he wasn't, like, a warrior fighting off all the trolls. There were trolls, and they were bad, but the plots were usually like, oh, no, there's a fox with a with a broken angle, and the, the, no, the trolls are going to go get him, so we have to head over there and try to put a splint on there and then hide the fox real fast. It was like this weird fantasy doctor show. Um, But it was good I remember liking it a lot It had a very different vibe Than anything else That was on at the time So that's what I knew him from Initially And then it would be General Chang Because General Chang is You made a joke When you did uh, The movie trivia Schmodown Star Wars exhibition match I'm Star Trek Exhibition match Sorry Uh, Where there was a category Called heroes and villains And you Mm. were like Ah yes Because Star Trek Is so known for what was it like? Uh, for its for its moral absolutism. Yeah, which is it's about hero. Good guys are good guys, and bad guys are bad guys in Star Trek, which is actually far more nuanced than that when it comes to its morals. Exactly, but uh, every once in a while they did have some good villains, and I would put General Chang right up there, at least in the movies, hmm. as one of the better villains they ever had. He's charismatic. He's dangerous. He's smart. Uh, just yelling Shakespeare while he's shooting at guys and Kirk's like, well, someone shut him up. <laughs> so damn cool. We should, we should stop talking about the Shakespeare though. Cause he did a lot of cool stuff. Um, mm. He did some of my, like he did like a great series of like genre films, like right in a row. He did this fantastic Elliot Gould bank robbery movie <laughs> called the silent partner. I haven't watched it, but I projected it. Yeah, and so I've seen I've seen the male slot scene, and that's the <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, um, um, Elliot Gould plays a teller at a bank, and uh, Christopher Plummer robs the joint, and Elliot Gould decides, well, this is my chance, and he basically uh, takes the money himself before Christopher Plummer can get it, mm-hmm. and now Christopher Plummer is trying to steal it from Elliot Gould, and it's a game of cat and mouse. Really cool movie, actually. Uh, doesn't get a lot of play. It was co-written, uh, or sorry, the screenplay was written by Curtis Hansen, who would go on to win an Academy Award for adapting *L.A. Confidential*, and he also directed that film. Um, he also did a movie that you and I will go to bat for constantly, and no one else will. *Star Crash*. <laughs> *Star Crash* is great, which is one of the better Star Wars knockoffs, um, and it's one of those movies where everyone's like, "Oh yes, Christopher Plummer," you know, he had such integrity, and he wouldn't take crap roles. And I'm like, "Yeah, he would." Uh, <laughs> he, he was in the Paul Bettany movie *Priest*. You know, he's uh, he, he'll, he, he'll do a crap role now yeah. and then. He'll, he'll get a paycheck. But if you were to sit sit him down and talk, you know, there are some actors who will you know say, "Oh, I just took that. I I did the best I could. I knew it was it was just something I did. It was a job. Yeah, I'm gonna do a job." Uh, you talk to Christopher Palmer; he's gonna get into the nitty gritty of yeah. the characters he's playing in Star Crash. Oh, yeah. oh, he was a deposed king, and I looked into kings, and I wanted to bring a lot of majesty <laughs> to this shitty Star Wars knockoff that I was in. Uh, I always thought he was a really great Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> he was in a really good Sherlock Holmes movie uh, called Murder by Decree, which was directed by Bob Clark, uh, who at the time was best known for horror movies like Death Dream and uh, Black Christmas, but would eventually go on uh, to be uh, to make a whole new career for himself doing family movies. 
uh, like A Christmas Story and also a lot of bad ones as well, like Baby Geniuses and Karate Karate Dog. Dog, But um, Murder by Degrees is really creepy, atmospheric uh, Sherlock Holmes film in which he's fighting Jack the Ripper, uh, Christopher Plummer and James Mason, David Hemmings. Ooh, uh, good cast. I think uh, John Gielgud's in it, Donald Sutherland, Genevieve uh, Bujold. Um, just gorgeously filmed. Really, really cool. Um, mm. And then, of course, he was in Dreamscape, which I feel like people don't talk about very often. It's been a while since I've seen Dreamscape. Dreamscape was a cool movie. It started Dennis Quaid back when like he could do no wrong in sci-fi fantasy in the 80s. Um, and he's a psychic, and he is brought into a secret program that is trying to insert psychics into people's dreams, ostensibly for therapeutic purposes. And he's like going to people who have horrifying recurring nightmares and trying to rescue them from them mm. so that he can... You know, make them well again. Fight monsters in the dream world. Yeah, it's really cool. But it turns out that once they perfected the process, Christopher Plummer has a scheme to invade to invade the dreams of the president of the United States. <laughs> ah, it's a cool film. Uh, and and this was in the eighties. This is long before Inception. Oh yeah, oh, long, long, long. This is even before uh, Paprika, which is the movie that Inception basically knocks off. So Paprika is awesome. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, yeah, he he. Uh, my, one of my favorite roles of his was probably in a uh, not very talked about but very good Stephen King adaptation called Dolores Claiborne. Oh, that's a good. One. Uh, yeah, where he, uh, it's about uh, Dolores Claiborne and her daughter and the sort of the uh, cycle of abuse at the horrible uh, father slash husband's hands. Yeah, and how that has driven Dolores Claiborne to uh, particular extremes. And I don't want to give away too many plot points because. Uh, there's a lot of surprises in that movie, but in the past, because it takes place in two time frames, uh, Christopher Plummer plays uh, sort of the smarmy cop who's investigating a lot of the crimes, and he is terrifying in that oh, yeah. movie. Like he's playing a a cop. He's not he's not the villain of the piece, but he kind of is because he's so suspicious and just so sadistic in his in his uh his actions. Yeah, it's it's a really underappreciated mm. film, I feel, and it's it's it doesn't really have any supernatural elements to it. It's just it's murder just an and regret story, yeah. and recovered memory. And David Strathairn is also really really terrifying in that movie, yeah, as well. Everyone's really good in that. Um, so yeah, that's a good one too. Basically, if Christopher Plummer was in it, that wasn't a guarantee that it was good, but it was a guarantee that Christopher Plummer was going to be good. Mm. What would you say was his best performance if you had to pick? Ooh, like that's a tough one. I think I'd go with the Insider. I think it was okay, really, really oh, great yeah, as Mike yeah. Wallace. Uh, the Insider was a Michael Mann film from 1999, uh, which was about uh, sort of the controversy over whether to uh, air a whistleblower uh, in the uh, for the cigarette industry who was trying to blow the lid off of just how ridiculously unhealthy cigarettes are and how the cigarette industry knows it and sells them anyway just because they want money and they don't care if you die. Mm. Uh, and uh, 60 Minutes had to struggle with whether or not to run that. And Mike Wallace uh, is played by Christopher Plummer, and Christopher Plummer nails it. And I think he really gets a lot of nuance out of the character, and um, damn good movie. Yeah, uh, It's it's really tough to choose, list, like, a, a great Christopher Plummer performance. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's sexy AF in The Sound of Music. I we, know, didn't, we didn't talk about know. Beginners. I, well, I didn't see Beginners, oh, uh, okay. which, which I know is uh, sort of a a highlight in his career, uh, at least in his later career, Award. because yeah, he, yeah. he got an Academy Award for playing a, a man in his eighties who uh, only had just come out. And it was about how uh, 
he was discovering himself for the first time while his son was sort of trying to figure out his own life. Yeah. Uh, his son was, uh, uh, Ewan, McGregor. Ewan McGregor in that movie. I, I love everything. Everything Christopher Plummer in that movie is great. Some of the Ewan McGregor stuff. I'm like, can we get back to Christopher Plummer, please? <laughs> I'm a little less interested in this than I am in Christopher Plummer, but, mm-hmm. Uh, I I did love him in Knives Out. Yeah, just, he was good. I, I know, like at that point in his career, all of this reputation is behind him. I really liked him in The Last Station, mm. where he played Leo Tolstoy. That's a great uh, movie. No yeah, one talks about. That's yeah. a great movie. It's, it's it's like the best Anna Karenina adaptation. That's not technically an Anna Karenina adaptation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he was perfectly cast in a really shitty Christmas Carol movie. Yes. <laughs> Dan Stevens, who does, what, what famous historical figures does he look like? Uh, well, it turns out Charles Dickens. Really? And does he actually look like Charles no, Dickens? No, he doesn't look a damn thing like I was Charles about Dickens. To say. Okay. Uh, but he plays a young Charles Dickens when he was uh, on the cusp of writing A Christmas Carol, and he invents the character of Ebenezer Scrooge, and Ebenezer Scrooge appears to him in visions. And Ebenezer Scrooge is played by Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you have loved to see a, just a straight Christmas Carol adaptation with Christopher Plummer as yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge? It's great casting. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's great casting. But this is sort of proto, because he's not part of the story yet, mm-hmm. he actually uh, takes on the role of this like intimidating, abusive figure in Dickens' life. Yeah, so like, it's, 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 like, not, it's almost like his father. Like, yeah, he becomes like yeah. A, yeah. So, so he's not really playing Ebenezer Scrooge, but he looks like him. It's, 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 such it's a kind of a biz- it's, it's super corny. Uh, but it's also, you know, Christopher Plummer is walking this weird tightrope where he's playing this really well-known literary character uh-huh. But also trying to turn him into kind of a villain, like I, well, I guess Scrooge is a villain, but yeah. like a villain for Dickens, and which he, his role is a little different. I just had a great idea, hmm. as it's, it's it's got nothing directly to do with Christopher Plummer. But I was thinking of like, ah, oh, Christopher Plummer would have been a great Ebenezer Scrooge, and then my head went. Ah, oh, the last great Scrooge movie we had was The Muppet Christmas Carol. And ah, mm-hmm. oh, wouldn't it be great if we had gotten just remade The Muppet Christmas Carol, but with Christopher Plummer as Ebenezer Scrooge. And I'm like, it's really unnecessary. The first one holds up so good. Yeah, so, what Michael Caine was also a fine yeah. Scrooge. So, so, like, so what yeah. can we do that's like that? So, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to retell The Christmas Carol, but instead of replacing the. You know, we'll have Christopher Plummer as Scrooge, and instead of replacing all the characters with Muppets, we'll replace them with all the characters from Star Wars. Star Wars Christmas Carol. Yeah. So like, so like Han is oh, like, the, so you know, Darth, like, Darth Vader would have to be the ghost of Christmas future. I would have to be, yeah. I, well, you could, you could, but theoretically switch it out and just have Darth Vader be Scrooge. Oh, I suppose and so, so it's like his son and his daughter and like, I don't know, Yoda or whatever. Some shit is going to be like, I don't know, but like Jabba the Hutt would be ghost of Christmas present. <laughs> I, it's a little out of character we, for Java, we yeah. live for today ho, 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 ho. <laughs> you ought to be the ghost of Christmas past because he was just there <laughs> he's been <laughs> around for 900 yeah. years wasn't it? yeah <laughs> love it love it we're doing good all this all oh, this God. is fantastic like well, I you know what's like, and then and then, pa- and then Palpatine is being Ghost of Christmas Future. Oh, of course, got, yeah. he's got the cloak. <laughs> I will show you your future. <laughs> show me your anger. And Grand Moff Tarkin's like working on the books. Like, please, sir, can I have the day off for Christmas? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry for for Life Day. Life Day. <laughs> and Darth Vader's like, no, and you God. must work straight through Life Day. <laughs> so who's Tiny Tim? I guess R2D2 is Tiny Tim. <laughs> 
Perfect. Print it. <laughs> Disney will take our check. Tweet, tweet, whistle, whistle, whistle. He says, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna, we're gonna make a mint. It's Star Wars and a Christmas movie. Anyway, we got off the beaten track. Uh, Hal Holbrook and Christopher Plummer were absolute titans, wonderful mm. actors. The both of them, both of them starred in incredible motion pictures, and both of them will definitely be missed. Mm. Uh, as for our new releases this week, uh, I only saw two of them. Okay, I saw three. Okay, um, is it just me or was this not a good week for movies? Um, well, there was one that was really bad. And then there was another uh, the one, one, the one that was really bad. There's one that's being talked about a lot that's pretty awful. Um, let's talk about Malcolm and Marie. Uh, Malcolm and Marie is the latest film from Sam Levinson, who's the creator of the TV show Euphoria that I'm not familiar with, but mm. that show stars Zendaya, Zendaya, who's also in this movie. Yeah, he also uh, did the movie Assassination Nation, which I also didn't see. Mm. I, I actually heard really good things. Um, it's a bit of a divisive film, but the people mm. whose taste in horror I tend to, to like jive with, mm. like they really dug it. So I've been meaning to get around to it for a bit. uh, A critic, uh, I'm going to bring up another critic because it's actually pertinent to uh, Malcolm and Marie, but somebody you and I have both worked with, Katie Walsh, uh, who writes for the LA Times, gave Assassination Nation uh, a not-so-positive review back Mm -hmm. when it came out. This is uh, significant because Katie Walsh, I believe it's Katie Walsh, is referred to explicitly in Malcolm and Marie. Well, not, not by name. Not by name. But uh, they so keep referring to that woman who writes for the Times. It's really, really weird. So here's the, here's, uh, this is a two-hander. There's literally only two actors in the movie. Mm. Uh, it stars it's John. Sh- shot during lockdown. Yeah, it stars John David Washington and Zendaya. Mm. Uh, they are in a long-term romantic relationship. He plays a filmmaker who is coming home from the premiere of his directorial debut. Uh, He's done a lot of work in the industry before, but this is his directorial debut. He did a film uh, about a woman overcoming drug addiction. And as we learn over the course of the film, it is at least partly inspired by the life of his own girlfriend, Zendaya, played by Zendaya. Uh, And the whole movie takes place as they get home over the course of one night. You know, they come home from the from the Mm. big event and the big event stirred up a bunch of shit in their relationship, yeah. and they're going to have basically one long extended argument for nearly two hours. Yeah, it's, uh, that, and that's, that's, the, that's the movie. They, yeah, very they simple. Don't, they don't really argue. They just sort of like trade monologues. It's, it's, very, it's there, very artificial. And yeah. um, the John David Washington character is a pretty shitty guy. He's really self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the fight begins because they get home, and she says you made this movie, it's essentially my life, and you didn't even thank me. Yeah. And it's about... Like, like when you were literally yeah. up there thanking everybody yeah. who made the movie. And he is such an egomaniac that he refuses to accept blame for anything. And, he, and all of his arguments is trying to turn it back on her. And she's... Yeah. It's your fault spend, for yeah, not trying hard exactly. enough to, like, to I, I don't. You, how come you're so obsessed with what I say? It doesn't really matter what I say when... Yeah. He's you just should be co- making your own art. He's covering and, yeah. up for a lot of his own shittiness, and uh, she's tr- essentially trying to get him to realize what a shitty person he's been over the course yeah. of the movie. It's really telling because mm. this is a movie that is basically an extended conversation. This is this could mm. easily be a play. Um, mm. Interesting. It's it's yeah. single location. It's uncomplicated in terms of the actual actions that occur. It's, it's pl- basically it's, cinematic. It, it's, I'm not saying it's not cinematic. I'm just saying it's it's very intimate and it's just two people talking. Um, they come home. Some stark black and white is telling you right now this is an art film, mm. and 
they get home, they uh, he puts on music and he's celebrating, and then he starts talking about how I, how great it went. All the critics like it. I spoke to these like. I spoke to all these male critics and they really liked it And I spoke to this one female critic And she really liked it And then I grilled her in particular really hard <laughs> Yeah, this, uh, this guy's like there, he, He's masking some not so subtle misogyny Yeah, it's really, really weird Because he talks about how all these critics liked it And then the only one he mentions for the rest of the night Is the one female critic mm. Who is the only critic, according to him He actually pushed really, really hard uh, about why she liked it And he didn't like any of her answers And he thinks that uh, She's masking some internalized racism And that she's not very uh, Eloquent or articulate about the medium And you know This is the first five minutes of the movie mm -hmm. And what we are seeing right here Is someone who has clearly got his head Stuck all the way up his own ass He's very <laughs> very self-absorbed right. And it's not Making me interested in seeing the rest of the movie Not because I'm a film critic And mm. he's mocking the position Which he is And I can handle that It's not the first movie to do that But because that's kind of all he's got well, He's just he is... anger over the fact that people liked his movie And he doesn't like that they're interpreting his art At which point you have to ask Why are you making art If mm. you don't want people to react to it And tell you what mm. they thought Uh these are two characters who are were written by the director, yeah, uh, Sam Levinson, mm -hmm. and it's pretty obvious that these characters are avatars for him. I mean, that's the that, obvious that's, that's implication, it, well, and that, certainly and he's inviting it, that. That's what it, it feels like. Yeah. He's feeding these lines. He's like trying to express himself through these characters, which is, of mm -hmm. course, what a writer director does. Yeah, whether but directly it's, or it's, indirectly, yeah. you're always, everything it, it, you write is part of you. It feels less like he's trying to create, you know, original, interesting characters with their own interests out of whole cloth than just sort of give himself an avatar. It feels like you're watching a podcast. Like it's basically, you're, you're, yeah, kind of. You're listening to a podcast yeah. from a couple who's been together for a long time and have a lot of baggage. And at first, it's really, really positive. We achieved this thing this week, and then it's just gradually degrades. And it's going to be a series of rants that you're either on board with, or there'll be nails on chalkboard because, boy, does he sound like an asshole. Mm. And and, th and that is sort of. The point is that sure. he has to figure out what an asshole he is, but I feel like he has little miniature epiphanies throughout and then immediately falls right back down again. Yeah. It's like he, re he sees a little bit of light. It's not about his arc and his healing. Mm -hmm. It's about how he has little glimpses of what a dick he is, and then he just decides to spin it all back around and become a dick again. Well, I don't need a so character... So it becomes really repetitive. That it is really repetitive, mm. and I really just, in, in terms of pacing, it is. Because someone will have a big monologue, and someone will just sit there, and mm. Sam Levinson will just leave the camera lingering on Zendaya's face, or John David Washington's face, after their partner just laid into them really, really hard. And we're just supposed to like sit there and think about it, man. And then they just get up and said, hey, I was thinking about everything you said, and now I have a monologue. And then that's yeah. just that, over and over and over again. And sometimes they say smart-sounding things. Often they don't. Often they say things that are uh, really forced and tried. Um, a lot of the stuff that makes this movie feel really unrelatable isn't the fact that this is... You know, they're living an incredibly bougie life I mean, they, they say they don't own this house It was the production gave them this when they're in mm -hmm. town I'm like, okay, fine But you still made this big movie You're still a famous, you're a famous director now You know, you're, you're 
there's there's an element of absolute elitism just coming mm. off of this guy when he's talking about how that film critic didn't even know who William Wyler was, which is just oh gatekeeping, and um. But uh, a lot of the stuff that makes this really unrelatable is all the incidental stuff around it. And a lot of people have pointed this out. Um, I think it was uh, Liz Shannon Miller uh, oh, who pointed out that like... I like Liz it, Shannon Miller. She's, she's brilliant. We've had her on the show before. Mm-hmm. But she, uh, she tweeted about uh, how in this movie, like Zendaya comes home from this like big movie premiere wearing this incredibly fancy, probably super expensive dress. Uh-huh. And then she leaves it on while she cooks. <laughs> <laughs> and like, she doesn't like take it off first thing and hang it because it's going to be uncomfortable. It's a weird, weird mm. choice. And then she spends the rest of the movie mostly hanging around in her underwear, which mm. again is something that people do. But you have to ask yourself there's so many, there are an infinite number of choices a filmmaker can make to tell a story. And at some point, you have to realize that the choice was made in this movie to let a character playing a filmmaker complain that people are telling him what they thought about his movies. And and he, how he is now dictating back that we're talking about his movies wrong. Yeah. And like, like you're not taking allowed, the wrong messages. You're, you're not allowed to look to, to it, it's wrong of you to look at my movies, the mm. stories that I tell and find that like some interpretation that this in some way speaks for me. Uh, uh, while I'm literally agreeing that all of this is true. Yeah, I understand the, the, there's a certain hypocrisy built into it, but I don't think it comes out very well. And basically it's just him ranting at his girlfriend, being verbally abusive to his girlfriend a lot of the time. Mm. He says uh, some pretty cruel things in, to in, her. Incredibly yeah. cruel things. And she even calls it verbal abuse at one point. Um, and uh, while she just sits there and takes it, waits her turn, and then gives it right back at him. But every time she 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 gives it right back at him, there's this weird... There's a lot of sexual elements to it, especially towards the end, mm. where their relationship and this incredible volatility to their relationship is very presentational, I feel, yeah. to the well, audience. That, that's, it just feels phony. That, that's that's the, the, the biggest issue with this movie, is that it is very presentational. That's what you were talking about, exactly what I was getting at, about how the filmmaker is using these characters to get his message across, rather than create characters. I'll say this, uh, Zendaya's great in this movie. Yeah, she's good. Uh, she gives the best performance by far. I mean, and from what, I haven't seen Euphoria, but I've heard a lot of accolades that she's very good on that show as she's well. She's a very talented so actor from everything I've seen her She in. and this director clearly work well together, mm-hmm. even though um, he is putting her across a character is actually very cruel to her, but at least at the very end, she does have the last word. And I'll even, and I, and I appreciate, and I appreciate the last word and the way she gave it. She has two really good monologues that I think she just nails. And, uh, I even give Duncan Washington credit for committing to being an asshole. Yeah. yeah, He doesn't try to be like, it's a good, it's it's a good performance. The the two actors are fine actually. Um, and in fact, if you were to take some of those monologues out, and put them in the monologues for young actors books yeah. that you see that you hand to high school students. These might be good those are pieces. those are fine, but as a as a, a yeah. piece where we're trying to follow a drama, it just it feels so hackneyed. Yeah. And uh and just ranting and rambling from not the characters but from the filmmaker yeah. that feel like this intellectual masturbation session. It just doesn't feel genuine. There's a mm. scene in this movie where uh, John David Washington they, they get home And she makes Kraft mac and cheese For them to eat mm-hmm. And I've heard some people Talking about how Oh please They get home from a movie Where they make Kraft mac and cheese And I'm like 
Some people yeah, have, like it's comfort they, food. It's some fast, people have craft mac and cheese. All it's, right? it's comfort food. It's fast. I, that's not what I'm complaining about. Right. What I'm complaining about is the absolutely incomprehensible way in which John David Washington eats macaroni and cheese. <laughs> He's stabbing it. He stabs the bottom of the bowl. Like, gotta get that mac and cheese stuck on my fork. It, it, it's craft mac and cheese. The, have you, you ever had it with that? a spoon? It's the, the, gloppy. The shells and, yeah. are so thin in craft mac and cheese. I don't know if you, what kind of fork you have. Unless it, is it, is it have sewing needles at the end? Is that how you're doing this? Because you're not going to get them. Like it's an absurd way to eat mac and cheese. And I'm like, this is how divorced. From a reality that I can, not, I, I, of course, lots of movies are divorced from reality. They're mm. broad fantasies and weird comedies and all kinds of stuff. But this is one where it's supposed to be like all intimate and like really make you think, man. And all I can think about is, do you? You don't even know how to eat mac and cheese. Mm. Like there's something so basic about that, and that the mm. movie whiffs it so hard mm. is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, and it's and, just distracting. Well, and it's also distracting because they keep on referring to somebody we know. <laughs> that well, was a little odd. Regardless uh, of somebody, I, I mean, I don't, you know, I've, I've met her and she's nice and, mm-hmm. and I, I respect her a lot. I don't like know her really well or anything like mm-hmm. that. Regardless of who it is, the fact that it's a real person and the fact that there isn't just like that one line of dialogue that feels like a cheap shot. Uh-huh. It comes up. Over and over again. And over they, re- again. They, they refer to her by, like, refer to this. They don't ever refer to her by name. They call her Jennifer at one point, but I think yeah. that might be, a, like, a pejorative use of the word Jennifer. Well, they call her Karen. And they call a her Karen times. a couple yeah. of times. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they read from her review extensively and yeah. talk about and they're putting, her and this is all a fake these experiences. Review. They're putting words in her mouth. Yeah, you know? with this person and what she said and how she looks yeah. at movies. And she it's, doesn't yeah. know what lenses are. Yeah. And it's just such a fucking straw man argument at yeah, that point. Yeah. And it's. It's tacky, and mm. frankly, you know, I think any critic would freely admit that, you know, we have to take criticism as well, mm. because it would be hypocritical if we didn't. However, right. there's a difference between that and, like, well, and trying to center an entire motion picture around ca- casting a hit piece. Casting a, 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 a a single critic as the villain in the abstract, but a particular critic as the villain. Yeah, somebody you could look up, yeah. like based on the contextual clues in the movie. It's um, it's tasteless. Yeah. I would say um, it's certainly rude, um, and frankly, it comes across as alarmingly immature. Mm, and I, immature is the perfect way to describe. This and I, movie. that's kind of how I feel about the whole thing. I, a part of me was like. I, I was, if this was a student film, I was going I to mention imp- if yeah. if if this was some like if this was somebody's first film and they made it yeah. when they were twenty, and yeah. and they were talking about hey man art is important and I just learned who Gilo Pontecorvo is and these people don't talk about him and and mm-hmm. I'm I'm an important filmmaker and oh no I'm looking for authenticity but it turns out I know nothing but I'm still a dick about it yeah and it was made in 1996. I might be on a, a, that film's way I might you, because you, you, you could you, see a lot of promise for yeah. somebody who's going to grow out of this phase. Well, hopefully grow out of yeah. this phase. But then you realize that this person has made movies before. Like, it's something about, if I were a film professor and someone had shown me this is their student film, I'd be like, wow. Well shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really think you have anything interesting to say yet. And I think uh, you need to work on crafting stories with more depth because this feels more like the idea for a rich character driven movie than it actually does feel like a character driven Mm -hmm. movie. And there may be some good monologues in here. There may be some excellent character work, but it feels like the actors are rescuing 
this self-absorbed material. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And yeah. it's unfortunate. It's almost unfortunate that it looks as good as it does. Not that it looks like the most uncanny movie I've ever seen or anything, but I think it's but, slick enough that it kind of could might, hide just how hollow and how you might be whiny tr- it yeah, is. You might be tricked into thinking you're seeing something kind of adult, and you're really not. No, it's uh, very I, frustrating. I was just looking up uh, Sam Levinson, uh, just looking over his filmography. He was one of the little boys who was playing video games in the war room in the movie Toys. Oh, well, Barry, that's a Barry Levinson movie. So, yeah. That, uh, Barry, that tracks. Uh, oh, is, oh, is he 11, like Barry Levinson's child? Son. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, okay, he's also a legacy. There you go. Anyway. He, he made a whiny bad movie. <laughs> um, um, maybe he'll yeah. maybe he'll grow up more. Maybe he'll outgrow that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, and you know what? And you know what? Not the first filmmaker to make a self-indulgent film. Oh, good. Not the first no. filmmaker to make a self-indulgent film after they've made other films. Mm. Not the first filmmaker to make a bad film. Not the first filmmaker I'm, to have... I know. I'm, I'm a Kenneth Branagh fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, many films. he's self-indulgent. He's made a few stinkers. There's a lot of, there's a lot of filmmakers who have made crap. Uh-huh. Okay? And I'm not necessarily going to say uh, to hell with him or whatever, but this just... This it's reads... A... This just reads immature. And mm-hmm. it's, frankly, annoying to watch. And it has nothing to do with the fact that he takes a hit out on film critics. Um it takes it has to do with the fact that it's about punching down at like one weird target over and over again mm. while you're telling a story that is pretty damn thin and ultimately doesn't have much more to say other than kind of complaining yeah. and that's not very interesting why would i want to watch that like i don't at no point does the movie convince me that i'm going to get something meaningful out of this at no point does it Mm. I'm not super invested in the characters. I want Zendaya to just leave the house. I, kept, <laughs> I half expected to find out that like she'd been like dead the whole time or something. Uh, some, it's all in his head. Some weird or some, twist. Some yeah. weird thing with like speaking to his muse or whatever. But no, it's not like that. It's just mm. she's really should be in a better relationship. Mm. Um, anyway, that's Malcolm and Marie. Uh, another uh, movie directed by the son of uh, an Oscar winning filmmaker. Came out this week. Goro oh. Miyazaki's Earwig and the Witch. This is the latest film from Studio Ghibli. And it is the first film from Studio Ghibli to be uh, done in CGI. Yeah. It is not traditional hand-drawn animation, which Studio Ghibli is known for. And rightfully so, because it is amazing art that they make. Yeah, they they have a particularly... Even when people... Most people know Studio Ghibli through the works of Hayao Miyazaki. But he was not the only filmmaker mm. who made films there. And... Um, Isao Takahata is it should be just as celebrated. Oh yeah, mm. no. In fact, there's a lot of filmmakers over there that should be celebrated. Goro Miyazaki had made uh, Tales from Earthsea, which I actually hadn't seen, and also From Up on Poppy Hill, which actually I also hadn't seen. So I, I have seen From Up on Poppy Hill, which it, is eh. kind of a boring movie. It's, oh, well. it's one one of the one of the worst films that Ghibli put out. But anyway, uh, Ghibli took a few years off actually, mm. and uh, now they're back with a new feature. Um, and it is, it's an adaptation of a book I haven't read. Uh, and it but is it's about... from the same author who did Howl's Moving Castle. Okay. Yeah. So there's a, there's Probably a certain there. pedigree. Uh, D- Diana Wynne Jones is the author's name. Uh, and it is about a young girl. She doesn't know it, but she's the daughter of a witch. Uh, she is left on the steps of an orphanage. And then we cut to yeah, like eight years later. She's a little kid 
And uh, she's got the whole place wrapped around her finger. She's mm-hmm. just she's, she's the Ferris Bueller of the school. <laughs> she's pre- precocious AF. And she doesn't want to get adopted because she's likes it there. She's got everything is working mm-hmm. the way she likes it. Everyone likes her. They let her get away with murder. She, she knows how to control the adults. She yeah. has a great time frightening her best friend who is named was it custard 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 i don't know i think that was a, i think that was a nickname but in any case mm-hmm. um but uh tragedy strikes when one day uh all of her efforts to not get adopted are thwarted uh by Wait. a woman and a mysteriously tall man who just adopt her anyway and it turns no. out she's a witch and she needs an assistant it's it's not it not it turns out she's a witch she walks in a witch and the devil walk into the orphanage yeah they look like a witch and the devil. Yeah, they're very, they're, they've got and a they, witchiness. And, yeah. they, and they take her home and say to her, right to her face, we don't care about you. Mm-hmm. We're not your parents. We need a slave. Yeah. And you're she gonna be, is. You're in... going to be like cleaning up our weird, yeah. disgusting cauldron room. And, and, and their cauldron you know. room is this revolting space that you can smell. And she, yeah. they talk a lot about the odors in this movie. And we see scenes of her like, shaving frog corpses and using yeah. scissors to and cut off bats wings and using and stuff. a mortar and pestle yeah. to like grind mouse bones into mm. fine powder. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of gross shit going on here. Yeah. And, uh, and her adopted mother is cruel and abusive and threatens to give her worms. She's like a, a to eat, to, not just to give her worms, but like, I'll make you eat worms. Oh, I thought it was like, give her work, like intestinal worms. Well, actually, we should, we should actually clarify here, because Whitney and I actually saw two different versions of this film. Mm. Uh, Whitney saw the English language dub, and I saw the Japanese language uh, with subtitles. So there may be some slight variation on dialogue on delivery. Okay. So, like, in mine was clearly, she'll make you eat worms. Maybe in the English dub, it was left more open to interpretation. or so maybe the, It was more like, the, I'll the, give you worms. The phrase they kept on using was, I'll give you worms. And, yeah, that's and not in the Japanese. There's, and the there's, a, there's a talking cat in, uh, in this one, in, in the uh, English language dub the cat is played by dan stevens uh and he he keeps on complaining no i can't i can't, I can't get worms again <laughs> something like gotta deworm the cat every once in a while yeah the devil is obsessed with like breakfast and subway food and that's all he does yeah, throughout he the sends, course of this movie he's got little demon sidekicks and he sends them out mm. and he just says i want a shepherd's pie from this one subway station in tokyo and they just go out and they bring it back and he's like great Great, I'm going to eat this. Uh, and the spells that they're working on are the shittiest spells you've heard of. Here's a spell you can cast that'll get your bus to show up on time. Yeah, here's here's a spell like someone wants their dog to win at a dog show and we're making yeah. a spell for it. So they're basically just work for hire witches. Mm. Um, but they're, they're, they're bitter, cruel, and working this horrible grind. Yeah. And Earwig, the main character is a vicious little shit. Yeah. She's really kind of cruel. And she has, is determined to control the witch and Satan to her liking, which she slowly does over the course of the movie. It's like this weird inverse of a little princess where it's like, I'm not going to like, you know, get everyone onto my side by being the best, most noble person possible. I'm just going to be more manipulative than you. Mm. And a part of me was like, here's the damnedest thing about this movie. Hmm. 
as we describe it, uh-huh. it sounds like a really good film. <laughs> it, it is it's, a really good film. I don't think it is. All right. <laughs> I actually really didn't like this one. <laughs> I had a wonderful time watching I, this one. I, I didn't care for it at all, and there's a lot of different reasons for mm-hmm. it. I'm going to start with the most obvious, uh, which is this is Studio Ghibli's first CG animated movie, and it, it's kind of ugly to look it's at. Not a good, yeah. It's not a good-looking film. They had their 2D animation down to this glorious and incredibly versatile art form. And their CG animation really struggles. Uh, there's some good sort of general character design, but there are a lot of sort of animation shortcuts. Mm. Uh, the actual environments feel, for the most part, there's a couple of exceptions where they clearly went overboard in a good way. Um, for the most part, they feel really sparsely populated and it's got mm. like this student film kind of quality. They have not got hair down. The hair looks really weird. Everyone looks like a doll. The, uh, Everyone and, looks like a like a plastic doll. And the the even the facial features like they yeah. they don't know how to. You'll notice if you see a lot of CG animated features, and this this became common decades ago. But you'll notice that the, what they do with CGI eyes is they give a lot of eyes irises. They mm-hmm. have the pupils dilate a lot, so it yeah. lo- they look more like natural eyes. And there's a lot more eye acting as well yeah. in CG animated features. In, yeah, because in, subtle uh, facial tics don't necessarily yeah. come across. And, so and that's also of, it's just animation. It's a little harder to, yeah. to pull off. Like that, you're not going to have that level of detail in a hand drawing. You don't need it. Right. You can get a lot more expression from just a still image. Uh, with CG, yeah, the eyes are sort of like darting about the way human eyes do, and you look around the room, and that's absent from here. And I didn't realize how much I missed it until it was absent. Yeah. Because the faces look really dead. Yeah. They're they're not super expressive. It, it, like they went they they it seemed like they put a lot of effort into trying to make Earwig as expressive as possible, but all the incidental characters. There's this one scene I noticed at the orphanage mm-hmm. where uh we walk past a particularly crowded room for the film. There's like five or six people in it. And Earwig looks like some detail went into her, but then there's like these two other parents like leaning over a child, like maybe they're going to adopt this child and they don't look fully rendered. Mm -hmm. They look really, really pretty, pretty uh, bad. (laughs) Um, So, and I think that really robs the film of a lot of its immersion and a lot of its magic. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this isn't just, oh, you know, Ghibli is usually so good at this. It's usually, it's actually like, I think a movie should be good at this and it's really just not. And it ends up feeling more like a student film too often, which is an unfortunate motif. But um, I'll I'll say this. They put a lot of detail and this is true of all of Ghibli films into the things on a plate or in a bowl. All of the, all of the foods and all of like the edible things are, are still even, even in CGI still feel really tactile. Yeah. But here's the thing though. There's this scene in the movie Mm -hmm. where, uh, we we find out early on that Earwig's favorite meal at the orphanage is a shepherd's pie. Mm. And then later on, after she started to, in the uh, Japanese version with English uh, subtitles, uh, the demon in the house is named Mandrake. Mm. I don't know if we've named that in the... They call him the Mandrake, but... Yeah. Okay, well, anyway. Uh, he starts to take a shine to her. There's no justification for it whatsoever. He just starts to. Um and he, at one point, she comes to to have lunch or dinner or whatever, and there's a shepherd's pie, and it's from her orphan. It's the exact same thing. It's exactly mm. the comfort food she wants. And she goes, "Wow, my shepherd's pie!" You know, what we don't see her eating it. We don't see that moment. All that tactile, all of that like sort uh-huh. of food conscious detail that is so common in a Studio Ghibli film, where we understand, even though these are clearly um, 
you know, sort of representations of reality. There is a certain uh, mm. emphasis on the sensuousness mm. of the environment and the things and the, that are tactile and that can be tasted and smelled. Um, it's like, oh, it's my shepherd pie. We have not figured out how to animate that yet. So we're just going <laughs> to cut right here. And the whole moment is kind of undercut by that. Oh, so there's else? a lot of stuff like that where it just feels like the like there's well, this here's, whole... Okay. Here's what's going on. Uh, Studio Ghibli is known for, uh, generally speaking, it's warmth. Mm. I mean, it, they've made a few uh, pr- pretty darker and violent films, Princess Mononoke most notably. Yeah. Uh, but even if you look at something like uh, like Spirited Away, there is this kind of very comforting uh, quality to it. This idea mm. that they, they give a lot of warmth and uh, thought to the interiors that the characters mm-hmm. are living in. Yeah, and even if things are hellish for a while, mm. they usually end in a and, yeah, positive and, and way. They, even in Princess Mononoke, people have mm. died and sac- been sacrificed, but there's yeah, hope. So, so there, there's a lot. There's a lot of hope and there's a lot of gentleness to, uh, uh, stu- generally speaking, to Studio Ghibli films. Uh, specifically, Hayao Miyazaki's films. Mm. I'm not talking about Grave of the Fireflies, <laughs> but uh, yeah, which uh, which has such a warm ending, uh, but. I think what's going on here is we're getting a certain flavor we've never gotten from Studio Ghibli before, and that's bitter. This is a little bit more like a Roald Dahl film, where the villains are abusive assholes, and the children are also kind of assholes. Right, I just don't think it has the wit to pull that Mm. off. The ideas are there. But but what it it has, and this is why I admired it and why I had such a good time with it, is it's really strange. It's bitter and it's odd. And I like bitter, and I like odd, especially in that combination. I just want the story to be told. Well, like here's a, here's a good example. There's All a right. scene in the movie where uh, Earwig and the cat uh, are they're tired of being abused by this witch, and so they decide they're going to try to put together a potion that will protect them mm-hmm. from her magic. Yeah. And it's going to take all night and maybe we'll figure it out. And then she won't be able to hurt us with her magic anymore. You know what she literally hasn't done by that point in the movie? Hurt them with magic. <laughs> she talked about it. And yeah. it's clear she's done it to the cat in the past. It has never been visualized. She's never actually done anything bad to Earwig with magic. And in fact, the, after that whole scene, and we don't know if it worked or not, the first thing she does when like Earwig does something bad is like use magic to throw a broom at her and knock her out of the room. At which point Earwig goes, ha ha, I'm so glad I took my anti-magic pill. And I'm like, it didn't, she hit you with the broom. It worked. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's, you're not, uh, the story is not conveyed very well. The rules are not conveyed very well. And there's mm-hmm. like how magic works and what, you know, how this house with mysterious doors functions. And I don't need to have it all spelled out for me, but I need to feel mm-hmm. like it makes some internal sense. And a lot of the character work is really thin. There's a lot of storylines that involve backstory. Um, who Mandrake and the witch and maybe uh, Earwig's mother were when they were younger mm. factors into the story somewhat. But and, and I like the reveals. That was pretty cool. The reveals are okay. Like They've had more energy than the rest of the movie. But at the same time, I'm like... Do we have more of this and less of that? Because these characters are just so much more exciting than the ones we're dealing with. And then there's all of these this information that Irwig finds out, but she's never given the context to understand why it matters. The ending of the movie feels like we're gonna the next episode of Irwig and the Witch is gonna look mm-hmm. cool, but I honestly don't know if Irwig has any sense of why it's significant. Herself. Mm-hmm. I don't think she does. I, I she has think, no way of knowing. I, I don't <laughs> 
they're, they're giving us a very simple fable here with a lot of absurd ideas. And you're complaining about these structural things that it's not even talking about. I'm concerned because there's an entire storyline. There's an entire uh, sequence, extended sequence Uh about protecting themselves from something that the movie has not even introduced as an element. And as a result, it feels like a a, waste of time. A monster has threatened them. That's not enough for you. No, because she hasn't actually done the thing. She hasn't okay. done, she hasn't actually presented us the audience mm. and the character with the threats that she's been talking about and as a result she comes across like a total pushover. So she's mm. I don't think she's a great antagonist. Well, I, I and I think that's what makes the film so amusing. These are really shitty witches. They should just call it shitty witches. <laughs> I would say, I would pay to see a song called Shitty Witch. Yeah, yeah. like I'm, I'm I'm an evil witch. I'm going to do all these evil things. What do you do? Well, bullshit stuff. Actually, I I figure out how to do bus spells. Mm-hmm. And 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 who lives upstairs? The Mandrake. The Mandrake. It's like you know this classical ghost story. This mm-hmm. monster. It's the devil lives upstairs. What does he do? He he jams on the organ and mm-hmm. he eats English muffins. Yeah, yeah. What else? That's kind of he it. Write, he writes books I don't like. The, the, that's yeah. that's amusing. It's this absurd I, comedy. I just scenario. wasn't amused. But conceptually, okay. it's amusing. Right. Talking about it, it sounds really fun. I bet I'd really like the book. Mm. But the movie just comes across, and I think part of it is the animation. It just comes across as really stilted and lifeless a lot of the time. And I just don't feel that the actual events, even though they are interesting on the page, mm. are being conveyed in a way that's particularly engaging, exciting, enchanting, even funny most of the time. I only There's like a handful of moments in this where I'm like, ha ha! And then the rest of it, I'm like, really? How long is this? How long is this movie? <laughs> it's 82 minutes. It's it feels longer. It feels longer, oh, man. It feels I, longer. Um, I, I, I didn't care for it. I didn't right. care for it. I don't hate it, but I don't think it works. I don't think the story is told very well, and I think the animation is subpar. I, I liked the setup. I thought it was very strange. I like that... Uh, there's a backstory with uh, grunge rock witches. I, where was and, where? Uh, I wanted all of that. The it, it's in there. Prom- it's all the credits in there. promised that. And then we're just mm. not telling that story yeah. until a little bit at the end. And I'm like, I was promised grunge rock witches. <laughs> That's a great movie. I want to see all, that movie. It's, it's all in there. It's all in there. I, I feel I, like the, the ratio the CG, feels off. The CG is not good. Um, I feel like this would have played a lot better if it, it a were a little, little bit slowly, more slowly paced and be uh, done in, uh, cell animation. Yeah, I feel like it would have been their wheel but, at least. I think they would have made fewer of these weird errors. But I'm, so. I'm reminded of some of the, the more oblong aspects from the films of Laika uh, mm-hmm. kind of coming through uh, in, in Earwig and the Witch and I had a wonderful time watching it. The movie it reminded me of more than anything else mm-hmm. from, a, from a sort of a outer universe perspective. There's mm-hmm. like within the story and then there's like outside of it like in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, is It reminded me of Flushed Away. Mm. which was Ardman Animation's first foray into CG animation. And frankly, it's not very good. And the animation is quite bad. Yeah. However, it did get them to Arthur Christmas, which is a great movie. <laughs> so what we might be experiencing so this is, here is this might be, this, this might is the be, experiment. This might be the film mm. Studio Ghibli made. And now they're like, okay, listen, we've learned some lessons here. Maybe our next one, it'll, it'll be stronger because mm. we're more comfortable with CG animation and we'll figure out some of these things. Like you look at some of the early Pixar movies, it's clear that, you know, they also hadn't figured out hair yet right away. It took them right. until like the Incredibles until they were comfortable doing that. Um, so this might be a sort of a growing pains kind of film. And if that's the case, fair enough. 
But I think it's fair to say I don't think it works. But right, well, I, I was amused along the way, and I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad you had a good time. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I enjoyed it as much as you did. Um, a movie I wanted to see, but I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't quite. Uh, well, I couldn't make it work. Uh, is a glitch in the Matrix, which I, yeah. as I understand it, uh, basically creates an extended universe of the Matrix, and the extended universe is our universe. Uh, that's not quite what it's about. Oh, okay, well then I was misinformed. <laughs> um, a glitch in the Matrix is uh, the new film from the director of Room Two Three Seven and The Nightmare. His name is Rodney Asher, mm-hmm. and uh, those two films, uh, The Nightmare and Room Two Three Seven, are um, very much about how uh, people can lose themselves in uh, a realm outside of reality. Essentially, yeah. oh. they 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 go through a a very specific type of existential crisis in trying to unlock secrets of the universe that may or may not be there. Yeah. In room two, three, seven, it's all about people who have these really wild interpretations of the movie, the shining, um, and how some of them are really elaborate and conspiratorial. Like it's Stanley Kubrick confessing that he faked the moon landings, that kind of shit Mm -hmm. to just really weird out there. I don't know if that's in the text, but you really seem to believe in interpretations of the movie on a film critic level. Mm -hmm. And then the nightmare is about uh, people who have night terrors, which is a very real phenomenon, Mm -hmm. but it's also Mm -hmm. about how, what they believe they mean. Specifically sleep paralysis. Yes. Sorry. Condition. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Uh, Thank you for that correction. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but it's also about what people think that means. Mm. what that represents the figures people see over their beds at night. And there's actually, I was a little frustrated with that movie because I feel like there is some serious and valid interpretations that are like sort of scientifically more reasonable than what's presented in the movie Mm -hmm. uh, that got left out in favor of this more weird sort of fantastical conception. But I think what I know from those two movies is I feel like Rodney Asher is less concerned about showing in those movies objective reality in any sense yeah not whether there is such a thing is is you know a matter of some conjecture but i'm more interested in just putting us in the mindset of people who believe this stuff yeah uh he's believed it he believes in sort of um a a crisis of like actual physical existence not existentialism so much in the philosophical sense although that's a huge part of it but about questioning the very nature of reality and this is a film about uh a class of people out there in the world, mostly you'll find it's young white men in technologically advanced societies who have, thanks to uh, a film like The Matrix specifically, but also other uh, aspects of uh, popular culture, video games in particular, believe they're living in an electronic simulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world as we the, know it is not reality. Mm, it is it and, is being it is being fed to us by, in Descartes' words, a deceptor who is uh, doing this for reasons we do not know. But mm. we look around at the world and it's all a simulation. And, and some I, people, yeah. uh, and uh, Rodney Asher interviews a lot of people who believe this, and they go on uh, long, long tirades and these really interesting uh, things that they've thought an awful lot about about little things they've encountered in the life, like weird behavior from people or uh, weird things that seem to have vanished. They put a cup down and then it's gone when they turn around and look at it and they can't, don't remember what happened to it. So they are now convinced that these little uh, aberrations are what they call glitches in the matrix that they're living in, just right. like in the movie. 
some people believe it's like in the Matrix and that there's some sort of evil machine intelligence in control of all of this. The actual explanations behind this kind of vary, but these people are 100% convinced. Are they all convinced? I'm curious because mm. I didn't say this. Mm. And I, I think this is the kind of like, whether you were thinking about this before the Matrix or you were introduced to the concept mm. at a young age by the Matrix, for example, um, this is the kind of, I think, sci-fi sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? What if? Yeah. That I think a lot of people have toyed with in their heads at some point. Much like, yeah. you'd be like, what if there was a zombie apocalypse? What would I do? And, yeah. Or what and, if this uh, is all a simulation and we all are on yeah. a computer, whatever. And if, even before the Matrix, I had a similar crisis. Sure. Uh, when when I was in high school, it's like, what, what if we're just like in virtual reality chairs? Yeah. You don't know. I remember when I was a kid trying to like observe myself observing myself and mm. saying to myself, what if this is not the end reality? Mm. And if the way, and again, I wasn't, I didn't have a conventional religious education, mm. but as a lot of religion was presented to me in this sort of concept of an afterlife, for example, the implication was, well, you're going to live in the afterlife forever. So what is this? If not mm. like a testing zone or something, <laughs> and this isn't the part that is the most important. Mm. You know, this just sort of determines where you're going to end up in the rest of the, computer program or mm. you know whatever it is and so this is something that i've toyed with but the thing that i've always struggled with and i'm curious if everyone in the movie if, if this is discussed and if it is discussed if it is uh people seem to have a unified concept of it do people think that they're the only ones in the simulation and everyone else is fictional or do well, they think I, we're all stuck in there like in the Matrix? I, I, I was getting to that. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, I, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> let, let me continue. About you know what? I'll shut the hell up the rest of the podcast. Um, but uh, they uh, start to what Ronnie Asher, Asher starts to delve into while he's exploring a lot of this. And there's a lot of validation for these people because people like Philip K. Dick rather famously, uh, and they find video footage of him saying this, uh, that he believed he was living in a simulation and he couldn't prove otherwise. And he believed that it was a matter of trying to reconcile these very strong visions he had of sort of breaking out very briefly and then being put back in this simulation that he's living inside of. And thanks to video games and the per, uh, just how these things have pervaded a, a lot of society and the way video games are controlled and the way we see video games as these sort of virtual worlds have now given people the language to uh, express themselves in this way. And when you play a video game, though, you're typically the player and the world you're going into. Everything else is uh, is simulated. And in fact, they talk a lot about NPCs, non-player characters, mm -hmm. and how that's how they start to view other people after a while. Yeah. As non-player characters. They're programmed to act certain ways within certain parameters. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that that was actually a big part of a lot of the, the, the QAnon stuff. Mm. The whole NPCs. These people are, they don't really have a consciousness. They're NPCs. They're non-player characters. They're yeah. not contributing anything useful to the conversation. They may yeah. as well just be programmed. Which is a really Nietzschean mm. sort of way to look at other yeah, people. Yeah, and, and they talk yeah. about Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, more than that, they talk about Descartes because Descartes actually introduced a lot of this ideas hundreds of years ago about... The whole I think therefore I am was actually a, a grand scheme to prove that he existed. Mm -hmm. And how could he prove that he exists? He can't be sure of any sense input. Yeah. Uh, the senses are not reliable, but if he thinks he exists, I think therefore I am. Yeah. Then they go back even further to the metaphor of the cave, back with Plato thousands of years ago about how what you're seeing is not real. You're seeing a shadow of reality projected on a cave wall. 
and that's your accepted reality. And the people who accept that aren't alert yet. And in fact, the, the metaphor of the cave keeps on going on to people rising up and actually seeing what happens to what what is projecting those shadows and whether or not they can accept it. That's mm. a bigger part of the, uh, the, the metaphor of the cave. Right. Uh, but when you... There's all of these philosophical traditions, there's some religious traditions, but now we're in sort of a, a secular technological version of this same thing. This is a documentary all about how people have become increasingly disconnected from reality and start to believe this. Uh, I don't even, I don't, the film never calls it a fantasy, but this notion. Yeah. Uh, and also how it has some pretty bad real life consequences, because if you only see people as non-player characters, you are under no obligation to treat them like human beings. Right. And indeed, they uh, do tell the story of a murder case about somebody, of a Matrix fan who believed that his, his victims weren't necessarily real. Um, and and it, it does it in pretty harrowing detail as well. That's horrible. Uh, I wish it had gone even further, but this is a fascinating documentary. Okay. Because it's introducing a lot of these... Uh, interesting philosophical notions and ideas that are very much a part of modern technological culture and are things that we perhaps need to think a little bit more about as technology continues to advance and our philosophy is now going to be mixed up in these brand new pop culture ideas. We need to start figuring out how to start having more open conversations and talking more about these ideas before people start to get lost in the video game version of it. Yeah, there's this mm. interesting thing where, you know, as we learn more mm. about the world around us and as we invent new technologies, um, they do have this very tangible effect on how we interact with the world around us, how we discuss the world around us. And that history sounds really interesting because it sounds like everyone's discussing basically the same thing, except now, today, that we have computer technology mm. and concepts like virtual reality, uh, we have a different lens through which to see it. It's the same basic premise hmm. as Plato's cave or Descartes, but now we see it through this lens of technology. Does that mean we're actually in a computer simulation? No. First off, we're not necessarily in that anyway, but it might just mean that that's all we know about now. Hmm. And in a hundred years, we'll have an entirely different framework to discuss the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, th there's even a wonderful uh, discussion had earlier in the documentary where, uh, fellows talking about a conversation they had with their professor and how the professor said, um, if you like the way we looked at biology and when uh, circuits like electrical circuits were first invented, that yeah. became the metaphor for how we look at the body. The brain mm -hmm. sends circuits, like yeah. signals down to the various parts of the body. And that's the metaphor we've come to expect. Yeah. Come like, to use to explain that. Look at look at mm -hmm. binary code. Everything mm -hmm. is a one or a zero, a yes or a no. Yeah. And, and that's uh, how that's how synapses fire. They either fire or they don't. And that's how the human brain works. And, and they said, and now we think of the brain as a computer. Yeah. Now that we've invented computers, that's the metaphor we use for the brain. It use it calculates things, and uh, and the the professor said, and that's that's how it is now. And now we know the brain is a computer. And the student, smart aleck that he was, said, well, but that's our context for the technology we have right now. And surely there's something beyond that. And the teacher said, no, we're done. <laughs> We've reached the end. <laughs> I think the professor probably just didn't want to to. Yeah. Stop the lesson well, to bicker it, with the student. Because but, at uh, that point, you're, you're kind of like, listen, we have to move on with the lesson plan. And look, we just... can speculate if you like, but we're staying here for now. Yeah, like it, at some point, we just have to talk about mm. the here and now and what's practical. Mm. And like, if you want to say that, yeah, maybe someday our ideas will change. Fine. But we have these ideas now, so mm. we need to discuss them 
now. And if you have a better idea, share it with the class. And if you don't, shut the hell up and let's talk about but, uh, how, to, how to fix a computer. Evolving technology has actually evolved the way we deal with ancient ideas. And I yeah. think that's what's really at the heart of a film like A Glitch in the Matrix. Is it just the ideas that are strong or is the actual like filmmaking itself riveting? The filmmaking is really wild, actually. Oh. If you remember, The Nightmare is maybe the most terrifying documentary I've ever seen. Okay. In, in like horror movie terms. Mm-hmm. People tell stories of all these like horrendous nightmares they had. And, and they're, 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 they're visualized. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's like... An, he, 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 it's, it's one of those like thin blue line things where he like dramatizes reacts all this a stuff. Lot. Yeah. And, and in this one, I'll, uh, the filmmaker interviews a lot of people, but they're only seen in CGI avatars. So they're kind of CG figures matching the movements of real people who are hiding underneath. Mm. They're kind of artificial people, get it? I get it. Uh, there's a lot of pop culture clips. Or Rodney Asher clearly has this deep, by deep uh, running knowledge of popular culture and how it relates to a lot of the things. And there's a lot of really fast cutting and editing and a lot of animated uh, computer simulation animation that looks really wonderful. So yeah, it's actually really riveting filmmaking. Oh, as that's well. cool. I dug the heck out of this thing. I love this kind of shit. <laughs> this kind of weird, weird navel gazy kind of college level discussions about the nature of reality. And it, it's great. And I'm glad that it's compiled in such an inefficient way. Uh, like I said, I wish it had even gone even further. Mm. Uh, there are some sociological implications, for instance, that the only people who tend to have this simulation theory are the people who do live in technologically saturated places. Yeah. Uh, and are also perhaps isolated and engage with technology a lot more. So their context is a little different. That's not dealt with so much. Mm. They don't go out to like a rural, rural community of people who don't have computers and ask them what they think. That mm. would have been nice. But what we have is, is a... F- it's a fun conversation, and I'm, I'm glad I got to see it play out. That's really cool. All right. Well, um, it's time to review these movies. Uh, once again, at the end of uh, all of our new reviews, we review our films on the critically acclaimed scale. We review films on a scale of C- minus to C+. Hmm. Uh, most movies are average. Average is a C. If you're above average, you get a C+. That's, uh, we genuinely recommend it. might even be the best movie ever made. But anywhere in the middle there. You're going to get a C plus. And then C minus is below average. Uh, we generally don't recommend it. Or maybe it's terrible. But either way, it's a C minus. Try to make it as simple as we possibly can. While also guaranteeing that we will never be quoted on a movie poster. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, Glitch in the Matrix. Whitney, what's your rating? It's a C plus. Uh, it's, it's for rent online right now. Um, if you have the six bucks, go for it. It's, it's really quite good. Okay. And uh, Earwig and the Witch. Uh I, I, I know I'm in the minority on this one, but I'm going to give it a C plus. Oh. I just really enjoyed how weirdly Raldullian and bitter and weird this movie was. I, I think you keyed into all the best parts, but for mm. me, the other stuff really dragged it down. Okay. And I just felt like the story wasn't told well and the animation was, again, they're, they're, it's the first Studio Ghibli CG film. It's, it, you know, it looks been, it looks weird and kind of bad, but I agree cool. with you on that point. It would have been cool if they knocked it out of the park the first time, and maybe this is just a stopgap to them perfecting mm. it later, but it's really holding the story back. So mm. I have to give this one a C-. It's probably the only Studio Ghibli film I can think of that I would give a C- mm. to. Uh, well, from uh, but I don't on, think it works. From up on Puppy Hill, I'd give it a I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one. Um, and then uh, Malcolm and Marie, that's a big old that's C-. A, that's a C- for sure. It's just... It's just a- tedious and tiresome and you just from like this from like the first five minutes, you're just like, we're going to spend how long with these people just having this conversation? And then it the rest of the movie is basically just making good on that threat. 
And um, yeah, Zendaya is good in it. There's some good bits in it, but I don't think it's really worth it to get to them because you're just basically hearing a big, long, whiny gab session. (laughs) Uh, And frankly, there's a lot of hypocrisy, ignorance, sexism, just general shittiness in it. And I don't know who that's for. Except maybe the filmmaker. I don't honestly know who who benefits from this. Like, who's why did this story need to be told? Hmm. I don't really get it. Really, it just comes across as well immature is the word. Immature, yeah. It's an immature motion picture, and that's very very frustrating because obviously the people involved, some of them anyway, uh, are clearly very talented. Hmm. And I I am not familiar with Barry Levinson. Sorry, with Sam Levinson's other stuff. I'm very familiar with Barry Levinson's other stuff. Uh, So maybe his other stuff is great, but this was my introduction, and it was not a good introduction. All right. Um, all right. That's it for the new releases. Now it's time to move on to the critically acclaimed streaming club. Every week on our Patreon, we ask our patrons, every single one of them, to vote for the next streaming film we are going to re- review mm-hmm. on the show. And the rules are uh, Whitney and I each pick two films uh, from a particular streaming service in a particular section. Uh, maybe it's from a certain decade, maybe it's from a certain genre. Um, and uh, yeah, it has to be a film. That at least one of us hasn't seen before. And uh, Whitney picked a film that I've seen many, 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 many times because it is li- actually a couple of years ago. Some mm. people ask film critics a lot, "What's your favorite movie?" People ask anyone, "What's your favorite movie?" But yeah. people ask film critics a lot because you know it's their job to love movies. And I used to waffle and say, "Oh, I don't know. It's one of these five films." And then finally, I realized, "No, it's Searching for Bobby Fischer." I just, <laughs> I love it. I get something out of it every single time. It's beautiful. It's funny. It's exciting, and I never get tired of it. And I'm very, very excited that after all of these years, Whitney has finally seen it. So I want to leave. You, you lent me the disc once, and I just never got you around. Never to got it. around to it, and that's fine. I'm glad you finally watched it. I we we've only touched base slightly. Uh, on the film we've we've saved the conversation for the podcast uh so i would like you i would like Mm. to yield the floor because mostly what i will say will be fawning i'd like to yield the floor would you please Mm. introduce the film tell people what it is what it's about and what your reaction to it was uh certainly bobby fisher is a film uh, directed by steve zalian uh it's about a young boy not bobby fisher uh bobby fisher is a real life chess champion who uh rather famously or infamously had a really high profile chess match. It was a big deal. People were actually talking about chess. Mm-hmm. Like internationally, uh, it was like yeah. the cold war and he was playing the greatest chess champion in Russia. Of Russia. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they had this big knockdown drag out chess championship. Everybody loved Bobby Fischer. And then he vanished. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows where he went. He uh, reemerged, had a rematch, vanished again. Bobby Fischer's gone. Yeah. Um, so he's this uh, enigmatic uh, figure in the chess world. And uh, it, this film takes place in the present day. It's about a young boy well, who present is... Present day in the early 90s. In, yeah, takes, that yeah. is 1992. Uh, and it's about a young boy. I think his name is Josh. Josh Waitskin. And this is, Josh. Josh is a real person. Yeah. This is a, this is a biopic. Yeah, tr- true story of uh, Josh who was, uh, as a young boy, a chess prodigy. He just knew chess. He loved it and he was very, very good at it. Uh, he liked to play the the old guys in the park. Uh, notably, he liked to play Lawrence Fishburne in the park. And Lawrence Fishburne was a hot shot, hot dogging kind of chess player. <laughs> He'd play real fast and do these wild moves. Uh, his uh, parents, who are played by uh, uh, Joe Montaigne and um, Joan Allen, and Joan Allen, 
uh, recognize that he has a gift and rather naturally f- try to find how to uh, fold this into his life, practically. Yeah, how to nurture it. Yeah, yeah l- let let him play the game that he loves to play. I would say more than anything, this is not so much a film about chess than it is about parenting. Yep. It's about trying to do best for your child because Josh is a very gentle, mild-mannered kid. He likes things like playing catch and fishing with his dad. Uh, Joe Montaigne doesn't get chess, but that doesn't matter. He just knows it's important to his son and he's going to try to nurture that. They give him to a teacher played by uh, uh, Ben Kingsley. And Ben Kingsley is warm at first and becomes increasingly cold as he pushes Josh to be better and better and better. And this is doing a a work on Josh's psyche. He's just becoming more and more stressed out. He doesn't feel good about the game anymore. He feels like he has to win, which wasn't an issue before. It becomes more about the competition than about the joy of doing it. Yeah, Yeah. and and that's that's where all the drama comes, is the, the drama between these two parent figures in Josh's life, this really tough coach and his really warm father who is trying to do best by him. And what I really like about this movie is that the father makes mostly the right decisions. Yeah. He knows what's right for his kid, and he's the one who has to stand up to the cruel people in his life to protect him. The, my favorite scene in this movie, mm. well, my, I have two favorite scenes in this movie. Mm. The best scene in the movie is the final chess game, which is just fucking phenomenal. Uh, but my second favorite scene in this movie is there's this bit where they go to a parent-teacher day, and mm. Matt, and uh, Josh's teacher is played by a young Laura Linney before anyone knew who right. she was. So a lot of great minor performances in this movie. Like Thank Tony you. Shalhoub is in it for like one scene. Yeah, and William H. Macy plays another dad. Yeah, yeah. Dan Hedaya plays like one of the coaches at one of the chess things. Like mm. every single part is perfectly cast in this film. Um, but uh, they're talking to his teacher. And Joe Mantegna has been spending all of his time taking Josh to various chess tournaments. And the teacher is rather understandably concerned that he's not spending as much time at school and he's starting to become uh, divorced, not just from his schoolwork, but also from his fellow students. And mm-hmm. he's getting a little isolated. And it's not an unreasonable observation. It's mm-hmm. actually quite reasonable, as we see that Joe Mantegna has been sort of hyper-focusing on Max's chess career and kind of not letting him be a little kid for a while. Problem is, she's also dramatically undercutting his genius. Yeah. And Joe Mantegna has this incredible speech where he is being an asshole dad uh-huh. while also being the best dad imaginable. <laughs> he's being an asshole dad to the teacher, but yeah. he's, he's being uh, very good to his son. Yeah, and he has this great bit about how my son mm. is better at this than I am at anything in my life. I, better than anything I will ever be in my life. Better than anything you will <laughs> ever be in your life. And until you respect that, I don't care what you have to say about him. Mm. And on one hand, that's amazing. Oh my God, it would kill to hear him, like my dad say something like that about me. On the other hand, he actually is falling behind in school. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a legit concern. Yeah. And they talk about like moving schools and what a big trauma that is. Uh, how he's relating to other kids is a big issue because he likes playing with the old guys in the park and, and with Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. He doesn't have like other kid friends. Yeah, he meets one other kid mm. who's like in chess competition. His dad's played by David Paymer and he's really funny. Um, but and it's actually the kid who would go on to star in The Indian in the Cupboard. Okay. Uh, who? Mm. God, what's it? God, what's it? I, I the main know, kids. The main kids played by Max Pomerank, who actually had a very small uh, career. He only acted in like you know like half a dozen mm. things that I'm aware of. Uh, but um, I can't remember who the other kid is. But anyway, 
Um, but yeah, he's, he's just torn and he's in this incredibly impressionable age where everything people tell him gets soaked in Mm. and it's really dangerous. And, and even Ben Kingsley, who starts pushing him harder and harder and kind of robbing him of his innocence. He has a great speech as well, where he talks about you're teaching him to value winning, but if you're not actually preparing him to win, you're also hurting him. Mm. So Either I'm hurting him or you're hurting him and you have to choose the right way to hurt your child. (laughs) And eventually they come to a more reasonable conclusion than that. But my God, Mm. James Horner's score in this movie is Uh, glorious. I I, I was going to say that the, the, although the performances are uniformly good and the drama is weirdly intense for something so subdued of, like a subject. Yeah. Like whether or not a kid will get to go to a chess tournament. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a, a big dramatic thing, but it is. It's totally riveting. Yeah. But it, it's, it's James Horner. It's Conrad Hall, the cinematographer who are really doing most of the heavy lifting in this. Mm. This looks and sounds like, uh, a, 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 this is right from this prime era era of like Hollywood prestige pictures that I really, really miss mm. uh, when they all were, they shot the hell out of these things. You could see the light hanging in the air. <laughs> Conrad Hall just knew how to photograph the shit out of stuff. Yeah. And James... one, of, one of the most legendary directors mm. of photography ever. Look up his filmography. Uh, see all the films. You'll be impressed. Yeah. And uh, and James Horner, who is taking the most incidental moments and like John Williams in E.T., turning scenes where nothing is happening into these big dramatic like climaxes and you're, you're like your, your heart is beating fast and then you're really sad and then you're really invested and then you're kind of detached and oh no, something horrible happened. Nobody said anything. <laughs> Nothing's happening in the scene. Chess for God's it's, sake. It's just playing chess. Um, um, I, I, uh, I, I don't like the way they dramatize chess. I understand they're trying to make it look really cinematic, but in this film, uh, better chess players are faster, harder chess players. Yeah. They like slam the pieces down and whack the clock and they move really fast. And of course, chess doesn't work that way. You kind of look at the board, you contemplate a little bit, you move one piece, you move it back. <laughs> Not the most riveting thing. Well, they talk about how there are different styles, though. They talk mm. about how the chess that he's learning in the park is speed chess. Yeah. People have like a two-minute clock, and so you're trying to move as fast as you possibly can in order to not give your opponent as much time as, as you have to think about your next move. Mm. So that's the chess that uh, Josh mm. is initially learning, and then he starts learning from Ben Kingsley, who's like, you got to unlearn all of that shit that is a terrible thing to do. Mm. You're using these wild, erratic moves to disorient your opponent, but an actually good opponent will know that all you're really doing is leaving yourself open for failure. You're not, they're not mm. going to be non. They're not going to be like they're going to be completely nonplussed by what you're doing because you're learning this weird presentational version of chess. And but the other kind of chess he doesn't like. Mm. So a lot of this is actually not just him between his father and his chess teacher. It's also between two different chess teachers. And it's Ben Kingsley trying to teach him this very measured, classical, here's all of these old maneuvers that have been around since like the 1800s. And then it's also Lawrence Fishburne who is teaching him the psychological element of the game, which is, you know how to play chess. I'm teaching you how to play the person next to you. And sometimes that means being showy. I I was going to bring this up. Uh, It's essentially a dance movie. Yeah. And he's going to win the dance competition by doing a little bit of the classical and a little bit of the street. Yeah. Step up to the streets, but with chess. 
That's a great pitch. <laughs> That's an amazing pitch. It's hard to draw. You're, you're right, though. It's hard to dramatize chess. Mm. And you see a lot of people struggle because some sports and chess isn't really a sport. And they even talk mm. about it in the movie. Like, is it a game? Is it an art form? Is it a philosophy? Is it a science? It's, it's kind game. of all of those things. It's a game. It's, it's, a game, it's a game fundamentally, yeah. but the competition is really intense. Yeah. There's a certain mathematical quality because there are only so many moves that are possible. It seems mm. like it seems infinite, but it's not. So you're trying to move multiple. You're, tr- you're trying to think extra dimensionally. You're trying to yeah. think like, if I make this move, here are the eight most likely moves are likely to make, and I'm going to think what I would make in all of those moves, and then what they would do next, and so on and so forth. And by being that prepared, you can win a game. Yeah. It's a really complicated psychological pursuit, uh, in addition to just being a game. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's hard to dramatize and make it look cool because all you you got little pieces on a board of squares, and I think they do a really strong job for the most part of making it exciting. And I think Steve Zalian knew this is his directorial debut, and what a debut! Uh, I think he knew that the last chess match had to be as exciting as the last game in a sports movie. Yeah. And so it's between Josh and this other kid who has been completely taken out of society. He's a chess genius as well, but he's not interacting with other children. He's not even going to school. He is just learning chess. He's a chess robot. Mm. And the question is, can Josh be human and retain his humanity and actually become a healthy, psychologically whole human being with a future ahead of him. Mm. Uh, and also beat this kid at chess. Is that <laughs> even possible? And the last game has so many amazing ups and downs. Yeah. Great ups and down moments uh, where like, you know, he makes moves that like piss Ben Kingsley off, but Lawrence Fishman knows that they're genius. There's a, and the, there's moments where you're, you're kind of, you're thrilled and you're excited by the drama, but you're also laughing at how kind of stupid it is where uh, there's, there's a scene where uh, like all of the, the adults are watching the kids play on a TV monitor. They're not allowed in the room. And yeah. so they're, they're kind of like looking and then uh, Josh will make a move. And then <laughs> like stupid moment. Yep. He's got him. Yeah, that's it. What, what has he got? No, man, that kid's toast now. No. It's, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. Because, it's, because it's, it's pretty dumb, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's but it's effective. But it's effective. I would say I would say mm. that in the abstract, mm. it's almost absurd. I don't think mm. I think absurd might be the word I go. I've for. seen There's an yeah, absurdity that, to it. That that kind of moment is is easy to satirize. Is my point. It's, because it's, it, it's a broad it, kind of thing. I think it works, and I really do like. I really do think they went all mm. out to try to find because they had to invent like this chess game mm. that this isn't like real chess game that was played. They had to invent a chess game that would look cool cinematically mm. and would present a series of dramatic moments. You need a dramatic mm. moment in which Josh right. does something Lawrence Fishburne would do. You need a dramatic moment in which Josh does something that Ben Kingsley would do. You need a moment in which he decides to do something that only he would do, which is actually very pure and decent and mm. good and has nothing to do with winning and is actually just about saying, hey, we're both good at chess, right? Mm. Uh, and then you also have to have an end game that looks cool. And they came up with one and it does. <laughs> um, I wish it had ended a little differently. Yeah. There, there it's, you know, we, we get a, a good, effective uh, sports movie kind of climax, but I think that 
took away a little bit of the moral nuance of the movie that it had been wrestling with up to that point. And I think there was a way to give us a, a lot more emotionally satisfying an ending, if not necessarily a sports movie satisfying ending. Uh, I, I see where you're coming mm. from. I think he has that. I think Josh has that nuance. I think his mm. opponent does not. And yeah. I think that's the point that they're trying to make. I know. I, 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 underst- I understand I, that. I I'm just, just articulating can, why, yeah. why I think it's fine, but right. I, I see your point. I disagree, but I see your point. Right. Um, but overall, I really dug it. It's, it is just an incredibly well-made movie there. There's not really a false step. It is, it is tight. It is efficient. It's uh, effective and just across the board. Every, every performance is great. Mm. All of the little supporting characters are given a little bit of something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every every little line of dialogue is good. William H. Macy has a line that always makes me laugh about mm. getting Joe Mantegna a sandwich. Yeah, and again, and he gets really obsessed with the sandwich. Like, I'm going to get you a tuna fish sandwich. Like, I don't need one. Okay. No, no tuna fish. This, this is it. This is our thing. <laughs> the only character they don't really characterize is, like, the evil boy that he's going to play, but that's by design. He has to look like this soulless chess playing It's like he's playing like, Damien from The Omen or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, D- D- Daryl. <laughs> we, ah! we made a chess boy. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> oh, by the way, watch the movie Daryl. D D A R Y L. It's an acronym. It's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Nobody talks about it anymore. It's a fun film. It's a fun film. Yeah. Try to know as little about it going in as you can. It's it's yeah. you'll, you'll, if you don't know like where it's going, it's extra fun. But even if you do, yeah, it's a fun film. R- really, really good kids eighties thriller. Yeah. But good for kids. Great, great climax. Like it's, it escalates in a way I did not see coming. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is actually happening right now, huh? This is cool. <laughs> Daryl, where are you calling from? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Yep, and you would not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so fucking cool. Um, so yeah, they, I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, and this mm. this is going to sound a little... Mm. I don't know. I don't care how it sounds. I'm just curious because I cry every time I see this movie, and I don't right. always cry at the same point. Okay. Did, did, did this have an emotional reaction to you, or were you just sort of mm. appreciative of like what it did? Oh, I don't have emotional reactions to movies. Yes, you do. <laughs> did did yeah. it get you, or were you just sort of like, oh, that's pretty good? I, I thought it was very good, but did it did it emotionally get you? I'm just no, curious. No, oh, I did. Okay. I, it, it, it's not set up that way. Okay, well, yeah. fair enough. I thought maybe mm. you know you're a dad and mm. you know you're concerned about. Well, you know, I, I know that if if I had seen this when I was a boy, I would have related to Josh yeah. and the pressures he was under, and uh, I, I maybe would not have related to his ability to compete. I was not a competitive kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't care if I won. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, I'm going to play a game. Ah, <laughs> you lose. So what? Hmm. Played. I didn't care. Uh, well, I was involved in some sports teams. That really frustrated my coaches. You're not going to win. So what? <laughs> well, you're not going to win. Okay. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have some crackers. And I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. Whether I win or lose. That's fair. Uh, and so, uh, so I, I wouldn't have been able to necessarily relate to Josh. I'm not sure if I would have liked the film so much. Interesting. Like I would have gotten involved in sort of the propulsive drama of it. And I would have known, uh, you know, the idea of having these adults who are constantly putting pressure on you is something I could have related to. Yeah. That's, for, but now that know. I'm an, now that I'm an adult and I have a child, Joe Montaigne is the main character of this story. <laughs> yeah. And it's about how he is doing everything he can to make sure his son is getting what he needs. I think that's a, I think that's the mark of an excellent film mm-hmm. about parenthood is if it works from both directions. Yeah. If you can appreciate it from the perspective of the, the child, whatever age they are, and of the parent, um, I think that that's, inc- that's incredibly good storytelling and intergenerational storytelling. Mm. When I was a kid, I wasn't really thinking about it on that level. I was looking at it as like the best sports movie I've ever seen, and at right. some level it still is. Um, but as I got older and I revisited it over and over and over again, 
I realized that what I was personally connecting with more often than anything else was this pressure. And I got some of it from my parents, some of it just from the outside world at large, uh, that you can't just enjoy something. You have to try to be exceptional at it. Mm. Uh, You have to overachieve. You have to overwork. You have to train. You have to constantly be pushing yourself. More, More is expected of students than of adults. That's true, but I think even as adults, we, mm. we still experience this on some level, especially if you internalize a lot of that stuff as when you're young, mm. and then you never quite get rid of it, and I'm the same way. Like, I was joking the other day, and but it was true. I was feeling bad that I needed two days off in a row in order to sort of, like, recharge my batteries physically and mentally, mm. and I was feeling really, really bad about it, and then I finally remembered... Most people would call that a weekend. That's considered standard <laughs> yeah. in most jobs. I push myself as hard as I can. And a lot of that is because I'm doing it to myself now. And I'm doing it to myself now because mm-hmm. I absorbed a lot of that attitude when I was young, when I was okay. in school, when I was trying to do things like be really, really good in theater, or music, or whatever the hell I was doing at the time. I didn't feel like I could simply enjoy myself. I always felt like I was, there was pressure on me to be the best that I could be. And I think happiness comes from letting go of that pressure. Mm. And I think this movie is about the toll of that. It's about the allure of that pressure. You know, the allure of trying to achieve greatness at something that you really, really love. And how that is a, you know, is fun, but it's also a trap. Mm. And I think this movie actually understands that there's a lot of complexity and nuance in that. There's a lot of different influences. There's a lot of different voices in your head, a lot of different philosophies that are introduced. And it's about finding a strong balance. And I think it does a really good job of that. And I find this movie very nourishing for me mm. for that reason. Okay. So it speaks to me very personally. But on top of it, I just find it formally an impeccable film. Yeah. Like it just, you find a, find, I know you're not a big fan of the ending. Fair enough. But generally speaking, this is one of those movies where I'm like, find a flaw. <laughs> like, I dare you find, if you don't think it's the best movie ever made, that's fine. But seriously, I defy you to find mm-hmm. a meaningful flaw in this movie. Not like some continuity thing where the glass is too much just to the left. Mm-hmm. Don't give a shit. Find a major flaw mm-hmm. in this movie. I don't think there is one for me. And I'm yeah. not challenging anybody in the audience to find that out. <laughs> I'm not challenging everybody in the audience. Like, I'll find a flaw. Search your picture. You, no. you don't have to. Right. You don't need to tell me. Sur- <laughs> searching do. for uh, searching for Bobby Fischer reminded me very, very much of another film that came out of, at around the same time, like within a year, uh, called Little Man Tate. Oh, I uh, saw Which was that. a film directed by Jodie Foster yeah. about a mom who has a prodigy son. Yeah. And not uh, in that film it's not a chess prodigy he's just a genius he's a boy genius and it's about her trying to find a school for him or trying to find what his talents are and how he doesn't fit into the world anymore because of his gifts you know he he has all these sophisticated ideas which means he can't play with other kids really yeah you can't just send him to college because he won't be like socially acclimated he's not emotionally ready you send him to college to to you know challenge him mentally and he can't hang out with 19 year olds he's like eight no, it's, it's a can, really can't rough go situation. To a bar. He, he does find a, a brief moment of bonding when he figures out, oh, wait a minute, pool is just geometry. And he becomes like this pool shark very briefly, <laughs> uh, like one scene of the movie. It's but fun. but yeah, it, that's another film about trying to uh, find a place for the gifted. Hmm. And I think uh, more than anything, it kind of is this uh, almost this wish fulfillment fantasy or an analysis of our own wishes where uh, a lot of people assume that they are above average. Mm-hmm. 
but that that's actually you know on record. But you you interview people. How how are you? You know, on, on a scale of people, mm-hmm. I'm above average. Well. No, that couldn't possibly be true. No, that's some, not what the word means. Somewhere you're average. There's average. There's going to be people yeah. who are above average and people who are yeah. below average. And of course, there are different categories. Yeah. I'm an above average pool player. Okay, well, yeah, fine, yeah. but like, yeah. So the, this idea that uh, there, but for the grace of God, if were I gifted, then maybe <laughs> I, maybe I could find a place in the world, or maybe it's difficult, or. Yeah. Uh, I see people who are more, who are gifted and who are a lot more talented than me, but maybe they have struggles I don't quite understand. And that's what these movies yeah, are communicating. And that's something I feel like a lot of movies yeah. don't do. A lot of times people who are geniuses at something, they're just brought in as plot points. Mm. Ah, here's this guy. He has like 18 degrees in nuclear chemistry and mm. he's here to explain time travel to us in this scene and then die quickly. Like yeah. that's, it's, it's about really well, going yeah. into what it's actually like to and be And all a he genius. says is, let's say this sheet of paper is time and this pencil. <laughs> oh, not this again. Exactly. But like, I feel like there, a lot of times genius hmm. is either... Uh, included as some kind of just character quirk or plot mm. point or an excuse for someone to say witty or obtuse things. Um, or it's not really understood terribly well because it's very difficult to write a genius mm. if you yourself aren't a genius. A great example of this is that movie Limitless where <laughs> Bradley Cooper takes this drug. I heard the TV show is better, but in the, the movie is, is quite silly. They Bradley Cooper finds this, you know, off, you know, black a, market drug. It's that, a, yeah, this little clear pill that basically makes him like super intelligent, gives him like an IQ of like 400 for like a day. And OK, that's a fun fantasy. Mm. I can see that. OK, so like we're addicted well, a, to, a big, to like, uh, achieving our ultimate potential, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm watching that film Limitless. That's clearly uh, the fantasy of a screenwriter who's stuck. Yeah. Like I, I'm having writer's block. Gee, if there, I know all of this information is in my head. If only I had a pill that could unlock it. Wait a minute. Well, again, inspiration. I, I think, I think there are a lot of like the power fantasies that we have in our movies are very sort of adolescent power fantasies. I dream of being strong. I dream of being able to read minds and turn invisible and doing yeah. violence. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Maybe not violence, but there's something very physical about it. And I feel like the older you get, a lot of stuff you fantasize about is stuff about God. I wish I was better at managing my time. You know, like that's what you want to do. I wish I could slow down time and enjoy my whole weekend, that kind of thing. You know, these it's solutions for actual like day to day life problems that you sort of fantasize about some sort of sci fi fantasy resolution to. And on one level, I totally get that in Limitless. On the other hand, the character is supposed to be a super genius, but the plot revolves him around him making stupid mistakes. Having to, he needs to do stupid mistakes. Like, oh, I have only these are all the pills that I have. They're all I've got. And I just I keep them in a secret compartment in my coat. Mm. But I'm going to hand my coat to this guy for a few minutes. What? You really? <laughs> There's Jeez. one part of the movie where he borrows money from the Russian mob. Later in the movie, we find out he forgot to pay them back. <laughs> After he had made a lot of money. He made the money! He could have paid them back. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, he, like he took a rent. Like he saw, oh, I'm a genius gambler. Oh, wait, gambling is fixed and I screwed yeah, up anyway. It's still possible to lose. Have the money. No, yeah. he actually made a lot of money yeah. with that loan he took from the Russian mob. You can't have like the idiot plot device if your character is literally supposed to be the smartest person on the planet. <laughs> you can't do it. You can have, you have to find some other way to do it. And so something like Searching for Robbie Fisher, and I didn't see Little Mente, but it sounds like it's up the alley, is understanding about the actual issues that are that arise from being a, a particular kind of genius. Hmm. 
and understanding that that leads to a particularly interesting set of life problems. Um, in any case, I love this movie. It's currently on Netflix. Uh, please see it while you can, because they're you know the odds of Netflix having a movie from before the year two thousand are pretty slim across the board. So <laughs> yeah. who knows how long this will last? But please check this movie out. It is my favorite still, and I do love it so. And I um, dug it a lot. I was, I'm really glad. I was afraid it, it would be I don't know just like not my speed or yeah. I'd see some sort of fundamental flaw. But I'm glad I really enjoyed it. It's been a while since yeah. I've asked you this question, and I can't remember if you had an answer before. Mm. But do you have? If you had to pick a favorite mm. film, what would it be? Uh, I I don't know. Um, my the go to answer I've been going to is either uh, Persona. Mm. Uh, Ikiru or uh, Eraserhead. Okay. Like one of those three is one of the well, I've actually never seen Ikiru, on. so we should put that on a poll oh, at some okay, point yeah. and give people an opportunity to force me to see it. Mm. Uh, I've been avoiding it because I know exactly what it's about and like, and I, it, it depresses <laughs> put, me just push to your think buttons about a little bit. It, it hits a lot of my buttons and it depresses mm. me just to think about it, but I know I got to see that movie it, at some point because it sounds beautiful. It's a film that's not just hopeful about life, it's so powerful it might actually change the way you live. Uh, Ikiru is is fucking fantastic. That's a lot. Yeah. That's that is that is a bold yeah. bold statement. Okay, fair enough. It, it, depending on the time of day, I would call it the best movie ever made. Damn. Okay. Mm. Well, I guess I need to see Ikiru. <laughs> um, as of uh, this recording, uh, the poll for next week's streaming club. Uh, is still live. Uh, it's often still live when we record. However, usually there's a pretty clear winner. Here, it's still neck and neck. Like, one or two votes could completely change what we have to review next week. But right now, the two front runners mm. are the first film in the Lone Wolf and Cub Samurai series, uh, which uh, is about a uh, disgraced executioner who has to become um, an assassin for hire uh, with his uh, son, who is a toddler, in tow. Uh, I've seen the whole series fucking awesome films. <laughs> I, I've not seen one, so yeah. this was my selection. I, that's really, really cool. And the other one is Cinema Paradiso, which actually I don't think either of us have seen. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. This, this was a big deal when it came out in the 90s and yeah. just slipped my attention. This love letter to cinema. I've heard endlessly good things about it. Uh, right now, those two are in the front row and it seems unlikely anything's going to catch up to them, but uh, if you want to maybe cast the deciding vote, it's not too late, probably, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. So head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, $1 a month uh, lets you vote for all of our polls. It also gives you our Holy Batman weekly podcast in which Whitney and I review every single episode of the 1960s Batman television series. Um, we also have a bunch of other uh, Patreon perks at our other tiers, including uh, Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about the various Disney films uh, that are not on Disney Plus, even though they should be. And if a uh, few days we're planning to record an episode of a double feature of Disney horror movies from the 80s, specifically The Watcher in the Woods and Something Wicked This Way Comes, which are mysteriously not on Disney Plus. They have a, they have a lot of other movies that were not successful hmm. that are not on Disney, like financially successful, but are on that service, but not these two, and I don't know why. Um Anyway, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how they hold up and whether or not they should be on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, a tier that has our, Oscar, our Oscars podcast, Only the Best. We're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Also, our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays. We are only a couple of episodes away from finishing up every uh, uh, one podcast, one review for every single episode of Star Trek, the original series. And then we're not taking a break. We're jumping right into Star Trek, the animated series, which came out right afterwards mm-hmm. and, and won an Emmy. 
<laughs> it's actually like was more acclaimed than the live action show, even though nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, so we got that coming up too. Um, we do commentary tracks. Uh, this month we're doing one for the greatest love story ever told: Baz Luhrmann's Romeo Plus Juliet. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's what people voted for. Yeah, and we got to give it to them. Then it'll be a fun conversation, regardless. Whitney is Whitney and I have very different but very passionate opinions about that film. <laughs> um, and um, and yeah, and uh, also again, soap. Head on over to Etsy dot uh, com. Look up Salt Cat Soap, and you can get a whole bunch of really fancy, handcrafted, specially designed soaps. Wonderful fragrances designed by M. Lampas da Silva. We just unloaded like a whole bunch of new designs. Onto that side, there's a lot of really cool stuff for all kinds of uh, all kinds of needs, Valentine's Day and beyond. Uh, so that's Salt Cat Soap over on Etsy, mm. and of course we're on Twitter. Uh, I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Simon. Together we are at Critic Acclaim, uh, and uh, yeah, that's it until next week. Never forget, everyone's a critic. <laughs>